Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett led an elite group of scientists into the desert to develop a top-secret project known as Quantum Leap. Pressured to prove his theories or lose funding, Dr. Beckett prematurely stepped into the project accelerator. himself in the past, suffering from partial amnesia and facing a mirror image that was not his own. Fortunately, contact with his own time was maintained through brainwave transmissions with Al, the project observer, who appeared in the form of a hologram that only Dr. Beckett can see and hear. Trapped in the past, Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, putting things right that once went wrong and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. Listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 30, MIA. What's wrong? Sam, you're here to stop a woman from making the mistake of her lifetime. What woman? Her name is Beth, and her husband's an MIA, a naval pilot whose A-4 went down in the Highlands over two years ago, and she thinks he's dead. But he's not. No. Uh, The VC have got him. He's in a cage near Cham Hoy. He's going to be repatriated in 73, but Beth won't be there waiting for him. Because she fell in love with somebody else? Yeah, someone she meets on April Fool's Day, 1969. That's today, Sam. Someone she's going to meet today. Oh, well. Beth. What is it? I don't think I'm supposed to be here. Don't give up, honey. Because I'm alive out there. And I'm only alive because of our love. Still in the peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to And someday I said Georgia Oh, Georgia. Someday no peace I'm gonna come back home Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind 
smile tenderly Still in peaceful dreams I see The road leads back to you Hello everyone and welcome back to the Quantum Leap Podcast. I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. And today we are talking about the last episode of Season 2, We Finally Made It, to MIA. Can't believe it's already the end of Season 2. It seems like it's going quickly. Yeah. A really short Season 1 helped. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I know it was, I think, I was like, how are we only on Episode 30, but we've been through two seasons? Yeah, you figured it out. Well, I had to look up the episode list. You're the one keeping track of all this, yeah. not me. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a great episode. We have an interview with Beth herself, Susan Dial. She seems like such a pivotal character that like, it really is awesome that you got an interview with her. It was our hope the whole time that we would get her for this episode. And it was great. And she was amazing to talk to. And that's coming up later in the show. Awesome. First impressions of MIA, Heather. Okay. So everybody, I think, was really interested in how I was going to react to this episode. The first time I watched this episode, I held out hope the whole time. And I was really sad at the end, like once it was over, that it was over. Like I was waiting for the last minute, like she would see him or Sam would write her a note and leave it and say like, hold out hope for Al or something like they were going to somehow break the rules a little tiny bit and just give her some sort of heads up that he's alive. Like, I didn't expect Sam to sit her down and be like, so listen, your husband's alive, I'm a time traveler, and he's a hologram standing next to me. Didn't expect that. But up until the leap, I expected some kind of little tiny clue that she would know. So I didn't cry the first time. Like, everybody asked. I know everybody was really interested. And I'm not a heartless person. I just, I literally didn't expect it to go that way. I thought, I, I just, I don't know if I'm just an optimist, but I just thought the whole time that some form of a clue or she was going to know at some point in the episode that Al was going to be okay. And I, I actually think the opposite thing happens. I, I, I think that she thought he died after everything that happened. Like, I I feel like their plan went the wrong way, which I guess it couldn't make it any worse. I mean, either she was going to believe he died or not. And I feel so bad for both of them. And it was really heartbreaking. And I know that everybody knows this episode is heartbreaking, but it's just such a sad situation for both of them because she's been alone for two years and she would have had to wait four more years alone. And I don't know how I would feel about that. You know, I don't know... I don't know. I mean, looking back in hindsight, if I had known that my husband was alive, but knowing in that moment that you don't know what the future holds and he could be dead, how long would you wait? How long would you wait thinking that your husband was dead? And at first, when I watched it, I was like, really? She got married two months later and like completely forgot about Al and he came back and she was just like, sorry, peace out. But her and Dirk were together for four years. Four years is a long time thinking your husband's dead and falling in love with someone else. So it's a horrible situation on both of their ends. Like, I I don't feel like Beth was wrong and I don't feel like Al was wrong for wanting her back. It was just a really hard situation. 
And it was really, really sad. I don't, I don't know what I would have done in that situation for either of them. I understand you holding out hope for them to fix it, for Sam to put right what once went wrong, because that's what he normally does. Right. But that moment that you realized that they didn't and he couldn't. Yeah, I was, I was really shocked. I think I just stared at the screen like, what do you mean it's over? Like, no, there had to, there should have been a, a second of some sort of hope for her. And that when they end on her face and she, her head's tilted to the side, like you can just feel the hurt in her heart. Like you can just feel the heartbreak. And the acting is so good in this episode because you believe that they are so torn about this whole thing, that their whole life is torn apart by this one event, this one day. You know, she meets Dirk and sets off the chain reaction of her forgetting, not forgetting Al, but, you know, losing faith in that he's alive. And, you know, it's just her face at the end, like when she says Al, and then like, there's like two seconds after that where she starts to cry. And then her face at the end, you can tell that she's heartbroken just as much as he is. It was really sad. Very sad. Very sad. And yeah, like you said, the acting was amazing in this episode. And I think if it hadn't been up to that level, there wouldn't be that great an episode because you can write an amazing episode of television like Donald P. Belisario did here. But if it's not acted properly, you don't feel the impact. And I think every actor was perfect for every part and they did an amazing job. Yeah, there's there's a lot of um, emotional moments that stick out in my head. There's certain moments that faces that the actors make or things that they say in the way they say it. And when Sam sees the picture of Al and he just says, Al, and he makes that face like, oh, man, because he knows, like he knows right then he puts it all together and it's just right in his face, like right in the look he makes. And then, you know, when Al at the end says, Sam, why'd you make me do this? You know, you, you can tell in his voice and the look on his face and the tears that are in his eyes. And I mean, Oh, it's just so sad. <laughs> so on your first viewing, you really didn't cry because you thought they were going to fix it. Meanwhile, I'm sitting on the couch trying to not let you know that I'm bawling on the inside five minutes into the episode when Al realizes what day and year it is and where he is. And this is the day that she meets Dirk. Well, I also think that... I'm saying this in the nicest way possible, but I think that you guys always give me kind of a pressure, like a, there's so much pressure on me with these episodes that have so much meaning that I'm almost like, have some like trepidations of the episode. I'm like, how am I supposed to feel? Because I know I have everybody kind of waiting for my response and my reaction and it's almost a little too much pressure. But, you know, I, I, I totally understand because it's such a crazy episode. And I know that this is going to be touched on later. And I think that that's also different because like I said, the first time I watched it, I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't cry because I seriously, up until the leap, I thought that they were going to somehow give her some glimmer of hope for him. So I didn't cry because I was like, oh, it's going to be awesome. Right at the end, something's going to happen. And it didn't. And I was just like, wow, that sucked. But I didn't cry. I mean, I, I was just because I I was pretty disappointed that nothing happened. I think a similar thing happened when we watched Star Trek 2 and Spock died. And I was like, yeah, but 
I know that Spock's still alive. And and you were so upset with me because I wasn't crying. But I was like, he's got to come back to life somehow. There's got to be something. And I, I guess that's one of the things of watching something later on and not having the reaction that everybody else does when they're first watching it. You almost had emotional performance anxiety because there was so much pressure for you to feel something that you were like, I don't know what I should feel if it's going to be good enough. Yeah. It's hard not to go, oh, we're here. This is going to be amazing. It's it's hard to go, oh, this is just another episode. Well, I think that because you guys have seen the whole series and you know that this is such a pivotal moment in Al's life. And I, I mean, I can tell that this affects him, especially after seeing this episode what, four or five times that we watched it? I can tell that this is such a big moment in the arc of the story, but I don't know what else is to come. Like, I know I've talked about rewatching Grey's with you. And when we rewatched Grey's Anatomy or even Vampire Diaries, when we rewatched those shows, I would be like, oh, this is when this whole storyline starts. And you you see something that triggers an entire storyline and you're like, oh, this is that moment. But when you were watching it, you were like, yep, no idea that this whole storyline thing was going to happen. and I feel like that also affects how you watch an episode like this. I think you're right. I think uh, it's much more emotional going into it when you, one, know that they don't change what happened to Al and Beth, and also knowing more about Al as the series goes on. And it's an obvious thing that he is not happy and he's quite damaged because he's not with his one true love. Yeah, and I'm sure that this experience probably damages him more. Because you watch his whole personality unravel in this episode. He literally unravels in, from the beginning of the episode making jokes about lingerie to the end where he's in tears. So you watch him unravel. You watch him with his stubble and his crash of emotions. You know how he's just yelling at Sam and he's freaking out. And Sam's just looking at him like, dude, it's just it's a leap. We're going we're gonna to be okay, you know. And Al is just... Like I said, you, you watch him unravel in this episode. And I can tell that this experience, seeing her again and knowing that he can't have her and seeing her where he could still get her back and not being able to do anything, that has got to affect him also. I can't even imagine like what this leap had to do with his psyche for the rest of the series. It's a widely misheld conception that men don't cry, but... If you sit them down and have them watch either Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan or MIA, they're crying. I cry every time. And a lot of the leapers share the same feeling about this episode. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll talk about that and much, much more after the episode recap. This is Season 2, Episode 22, MIA. Original broadcast date, May 9th, 1990. Written by Donald P. Belisario and directed by Michael Zinberg. Sam leaps in, wearing heavy makeup, a mini skirt, and heels, and smoking a cigarette in an alley. He laments being in heels and being a woman again. He examines his reflection in a cracked mirror in the alley and sees what appears to be a fairly homely woman. He hears a voice yelling the name Jake. He opens his purse and finds a walkie-talkie and a gun. Two armed men run into the alley from one of the buildings. Upon seeing Sam, they point their gun at him and call him a narc. A cop car pulls up and a gun battle ensues between the two armed men and the police. An undercover cop, who is identified as Skaggs, also joins the fray. 
while Sam hides behind a dumpster. Sam realizes he is an undercover cop in drag and not a woman. Skaggs tells Sam about freezing up in Vietnam after seeing a naked baby on the trail, which ended up being a setup for an ambush. He tells Sam that you get one freeze up and still get to live to talk about it. Skaggs and Sam return to the police precinct locker room. Sam, still in heels and a skirt, gets several whistles from the other police officers. Al is waiting for him and gives Sam the facts about his leap. Sam has leaped into Jake Rollins, a newly promoted detective in the San Diego Police Department, who is partnered with Sergeant Roger Skaggs. Al suddenly gets very serious and tells Sam he is there to stop a woman named Beth from making a huge mistake. Al informs Sam that her husband is an MIA pilot who is being held by the Viet Cong and won't be repatriated until 1973. By that time, Beth has moved on and married again. The man she marries, she meets on April Fool's Day, 1969. A young, pretty woman cries as she tries to fix a flat. A stranger comes up and tries to help her out by changing the tire. The woman is Beth Calavici, and he is Dirk Simon. Meanwhile, Sam and Skaggs drive toward the marina. Skaggs questions how Sam knows that a woman he's never met, Beth, will meet a lawyer as she tries to change a tire. They come upon Beth and Dirk, and Sam takes over changing the tire, while Skaggs questions Dirk. Sam startles Beth by knowing her name and makes her think Dirk is under investigation. Skaggs gives the same impression to Dirk about Beth. Skaggs and Sam go undercover as hippies. A disheveled owl appears and berates Sam for not stopping Dirk and Beth from meeting and says Beth gets the Navy to declare her husband dead and marries Dirk. Sam questions whether Beth and Dirk are supposed to be together. Al denies this adamantly and reveals that he was also an MIA and that his wife wasn't around when he came back. Sam, while sympathetic, doesn't think he can keep Beth and Dirk apart. Al says he only needs to be there for her for the next few days. Beth, who is a nurse in the burn ward of Balboa Naval Hospital, recently lost a patient she had a lot of hope for, which causes her to lose her hope for her husband of returning. Al believes that if Sam can help her remember how much she loves her husband, claiming Ziggy knows what music to play and where to take her to help Sam on the way. Sam doubts this is what he is here to do. A commotion breaks out as Skaggs attempts to arrest a hippie couple for possible possession. Beth watches the sunset over the bay and meets Dirk's mother, who invites her to dinner. She sees Sam pull up into the parking lot and graciously declines the offer. She confronts Sam and demands to know why he is following her. He gives her calla lilies, which she says are her favorite, and wants to know who told him they were her favorite. Sam says that he'll tell her everything if she'll go to dinner with him. At dinner, he says he was going to try to pick her up, but he saw that she was married and wearing an MIA bracelet and gave up. Meanwhile, Al walks around Beth's house and looks around. Beth returns home with Sam. Sam sees Al just as he uses the hand link to step through the imaging chamber door. Beth tells Sam about losing Andy, the burn patient she thought would live. Sam holds Beth as she cries. Al stands outside looking downtrodden. The next day, Sam says that he still has doubts about whether Dirk and Beth should be together as she met Dirk's mother. Al angrily denies this and further describes his horrific experience as an MIA, saying that he doesn't want Beth's husband to return to find his wife gone as he did. Elsewhere, Beth and Dirk run into each other again at lunch. Meanwhile, a trap is being set for Skaggs by the men who he arrested at the beginning of the leap. They use a young Hispanic woman to make a call to Skaggs. Beth and Dirk talk about her husband at home. 
She says without any children, she's been having a hard time coping with her husband being away. Sam shows up after Elle tells him that Dirk and Beth are together, wanting to move their date up several hours and Dirk leaves. Beth goes to change and Sam mills around the house. He finds a picture on the mantel and recognizes Al in the photo. He tears up and tells Beth he doesn't think he is supposed to be there and leaves. Al, who is waiting outside, attempts to leave via the imaging chamber door, but Sam yells for him to stop. Sam confronts Al about trying to change his own life, which he cites as being against the rules. Al tears up and says that Beth was the love of his life and he can't give her up. Sam asks Al if he knows if he is there for another, more important reason. Gags walks into a bar and asks for Rosalie, the woman who called to set up a meeting with him. She is waiting with a baby. Skaggs flashes back to Vietnam and is frozen. Two men pull guns on him, but Sam appears with a shotgun and kills the two men, saving Skaggs, Rosalie, and the baby. Al and Sam wait outside Beth's house. Al apologizes for not being more open-minded to other scenarios and wonders why Sam hasn't leaped. Sam thinks that maybe it's so Al can see Beth one last time. Al goes in to see Beth, who is sitting in her living room. For a moment, it seems as if she can hear Al, but she moves to the stereo and puts on Georgia by Ray Charles. She dances alone and Al joins her, unable to touch her. He tearfully begs her to wait for him and tells her he loves her. He moves to kiss her and he leaps with Sam. At that instant, she says his name and cries. Wow, I even got emotional while you were reading the episode recap. <laughs> Especially at the end. I think I've seen this so many times and I saw it so long ago in my lifetime originally that it's almost a real memory for me and that's how affected I am by this. Wow. It's a big deal. Yeah. We were talking about the acting in this episode before. Dean Stockwell was nominated for an Emmy Award for his acting in this episode. I don't know who won it, but I think Mr. Stockwell should have won that. I, I definitely agree. This is a crazy acting episode for him. Not that he's not a great actor in every other episode, but like the emotional baggage he had to bring into this episode, I'm sure, just to portray this role. It's crazy. In fact, in the interview I did with Donald P. Bellazario that is being released right after this episode, Mr. Bellazario actually talks about how hard it was for Dean in this episode. Oh, wow. I probably can't listen to that one either. Not the whole, <laughs> not, <laughs> not the whole interview. Yeah. <laughs> I'll edit you a 10 minute version. All right. I think this is Dean Stockwell's episode. If there is one, this would be his. Not that any of the other actors aren't good, because like I said earlier, they're all amazing. But I think you can tell that he's actually experiencing these emotions that his character is. It's hard to watch, but in a good way. But I think when it comes to, I mean, obviously he was the most emotional in this episode, but the little bits of sympathy that Sam shows to Al at the end and, you know, how they're talking and Sam even looks away from Al when he says that you can't fix this. And I did not notice until you pointed that out. Yeah, he turns around completely and says to Sam, you know, we can't fix this. We can't change it. They can't change their own timeline. Mm -hmm. And it's probably heartbreaking to Sam that they can't do it. But I think outside of all the emotional stuff, the reason they can't change their own timeline is if they do, then they're going to set up a paradox 
what if they changed Al's history? Then Al might not have been with Quantum Leap and Project Quantum Leap might not have worked. You never know. Yeah. And they wouldn't be there in the first place. So then they wouldn't have fixed it because they didn't leap back in time. So you just have a loop in time. Yeah. There's reasons why they can't. They're not just arbitrarily saying we can't do it for ourselves. Well, even with Sam and Donna Elise, Sam couldn't change anything. I mean, obviously, that wasn't as emotional as this episode, but... Right, because I think it was the beginning of the series. If they had done Starcross later on in the series, it might have been as heavy and emotional as this one. Right. But, yeah, that rule goes for everyone in Quantum Leap. I have a sinking feeling that the next couple episodes are going to be pretty similar with an emotional take on not being able to change something in Sam's future. There is no leap into the next episode in this because it was the end of season two, but we did a trick of watching the leap in at the beginning of the next episode. So at least you know what's next and you're talking about the leap home. And I know that it takes place, Sam's being Sam. So I'm sure that there's going to be something and Sam's not going to be able to change it. But if he's there to fix what once went wrong, he's got to be able to change something, but probably not what he wants to change. Well, Sam changed something in MIA. It was just nothing to do with Al or Sam. It was important because who knows what happened in that first timeline in the Skag storyline. What would normally be the A plot of the episode really took a backseat to the B story, which was in the forefront of this episode, which is Al. When I think about MIA, I don't really even think about the whole Skags and Baby and the setup storyline because it's really inconsequential to the overall story arc of Quantum Leap, which Al's story is very important in this. So that's pretty much what I focus on when I think about it. Right. But I think that they did such a good job at that moment where Sam says, what if it was something more important? And it almost sounds like he's insulting Al by saying like, this isn't that important. Because Al goes, what do you mean more important? Like he says more important. But Skag's storyline, it comes in a complete circle and that it starts with in the shootout thing. And then he tells the story about the baby. And then there's a baby at the end and he gets to see that that baby's okay. So not only is he alive, but the baby's alive. And the fact that he's like, she's alive, she's alive. Because I don't think the first one survived, or he doesn't know if the first one survived. So not only did he save Skag's life, but he got that closure that he needed from the first story. And the fact that he said, you live to tell the story once, but not twice. And so he gets to live it twice, because in the first timeline, I'm assuming he didn't. That would be my guess. I don't know what Jake was doing the first time around. I mean, obviously, he wasn't at Beth's house, but it's awesome that I mean, I know it's written that way, but it's awesome that at that moment, he's like, there's got to be something more important here. There's got to be something. And he knows where to go. And it works out so nicely. But yeah, it was such a small part of this episode. But even for a small part of this episode, it worked out so nicely. Like even when you rewatch it, you get to see the little foreshadowing in the beginning that tells you what's going to happen at the end. For being a B plot in the story, it worked really well. And I still wish they could have somehow (laughs) told Beth to hold out hope a little bit longer. But if they did, then what happens to Al? And is he a part of Project Quantum Leap? And does Quantum Leap exist? And everything, everybody they helped to this point, does that change? Yeah. I think the reason why the Skag storyline is so good is because of Jason Begg's portrayal of Skaggs. He doesn't have a lot of scenes in the episode, but like they say, there are no small parts. He acted it amazingly and you 
feel from the very beginning of the episode when he's recounting the story of what happened in Vietnam and the setup with the baby, the naked baby. And then the payoff for that is later on in the episode when he's staring again at another baby in another setup. He knows it's a setup and you know in his mind that he knows it's a setup, but he can't do anything. Yeah, he's stuck. Amazing job by that actor. Yeah. And I was really a big fan of his. He was so charismatic and he was so like, yeah, I'm a big shot detective. But like he played it so well. And I loved when Sam says something about this look gun on Lisa or something. And he's like, that's not funny. That's not funny. And he and he was like, you're okay, partner. Like that that whole thing was so it was so good. His whole personality was portrayed perfectly. And I was actually a really big fan of his. So I was glad to see that whole thing work out in the end. Because can you like what would have happened if Sam didn't save him? He would be dead and that would be sad. But I mean, would he leap? Would he have failed and leaped on? Like, what happens in that scenario? I don't know. Has Sam ever failed at something? I don't know. Not that I've seen so Not far. That you've seen, right. At least the impression I get is that Sam leaping to his next leap is based on whether he succeeds at his mission or not. So if he doesn't, does he just stay there? Like, if someone dies and your mission was to save them, you can't have a redo. Like, you don't just get another chance to save them if they're dead. Speaking of actors, what did you think about the guy who played Dirk? (laughs) You know, I know we're not supposed to like him, but I don't know. I, I didn't like him because I wasn't supposed to. But I also, I don't know if I'm just sympathetic to him as well, but I feel like maybe they were meant to be together. This guy comes in and even and Jake makes him look better than he is anyway. Like Jake comes off, Sam as Jake comes off as like the bad guy in this, like trying to make him go away. So it actually makes Dirk look better to her, which is odd because trying to not do that. <laughs> and, it's, and Sam's realizing as he's doing it, he is the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I have to talk about that later, too, because Sam was super awkward in this whole episode. <laughs> you'll have you'll have plenty of time. Yeah. We, we have four hours. Oh, boy. I don't think we're <laughs> I don't think we're going to put you guys through that again. <laughs> anyway, so Dirk, he still he did seem like a slime ball. I know that he's supposed to be this person we're not supposed to like and he's a lawyer. And I just I still didn't like him. And it wasn't because he was stealing Beth. I just I don't know. But he played it so well. Like he, I'm not supposed to like him. But then when they meet up at lunch, I'm like, really? Maybe this is good for Beth. And and that's so hard for me because I really don't want to go against Al. But I felt so torn in this episode because I sympathize with her, probably because I'm a woman, but she's been alone. And even she had said like their marriage wasn't perfect before. And you know what? If they had kids, she probably would have never left Al because she wouldn't have been alone. Like being alone for two years, she couldn't date anyone. She's married. She slept alone every night. She came home alone every night. And it's not like when you're single because you can go out and you know you're single. And I mean, not that that's any more or less depressing, but when you know that there's someone out there and you don't know if they're dead or alive and you're just starting to doubt everything and when she got the flat tire, I totally sympathized with her because you know what? Her life was rough. And then this guy comes along and he's charming and they keep meeting up. And even with Jake getting in the way, she meets his mom and sees him at the next table at lunch. And I know someone had commented that maybe he was being a slime ball and he was stalking her just like Jake was. But what do you set your mom up and 
I just feel like I don't think that he was trying to be a slime ball. I think that he genuinely saw her and were meant to be together. And as horrible as that is for Al, because it sucks, but it's not Al's fault and it's not her fault and it's not Dirk's fault. I mean, it's like he was kidnapped in war. If you're going to blame anybody, I guess it would be whoever kidnapped him or for the fact that he went back to war four months after the first one ended. She mentions all those things. She mentions that he picked war over her. And yeah, obviously now he realizes that that was a mistake. I'm sure in the cage, he realized that was a mistake too. I don't know. It's weird because I want to hate him. (laughs) I want to hate him and I don't want to like him and I feel bad and I want to side with Al. But I think that also is another reason why I wasn't as emotional the first time because I was like, you know, I sympathize with her, I think more than I sympathize with Al, even though I know Al. I felt so close to Beth during this episode. Like I felt like she was such a big character that I sympathized with her. I don't know. I feel so bad for everybody in this episode. It's so sad. I do too. And I think that's one of the reasons why this episode is so tragic is because there really isn't a bad guy except circumstance maybe. The actor who played Dirk Simon is Norman Large, (laughs) which we kind of giggled. I'm sure he gets that. (laughs) In in the credits because it's like a porn name. But he did a great job making us not like him. Oh, yeah. But even when Al's telling Sam all the reasons why Beth should wait for her husband, which wasn't a lie. Right. He just said it strangely. Yeah. He never said he was abusive to Beth. He hurt Beth in any way. He never said anything that Dirk ever did except calling him a sleaze bag, a slime bag. Yeah, but there was no proof. There was no reasoning to back that up. Right. I think he's just. Jealous. He views him as the other guy, and he took his wife from him, so that's why he's a sleazebag. Not that he ever hurt Beth. He he was probably, like you said, very good for Beth because she was alone. That scene we see at the end of the episode where she's sitting on the couch smoking a cigarette all by herself, that's what her life is. Right. Without anybody. She's home alone every night. And she's dealing with it, and she's being a great Navy wife and wearing the MIA bracelet, and she's holding out hope, and she's trying to wait, and she's doing the best she can, and no matter what happens, and she loses her patient, and she's holding it together, and then a flat tire, and she says, well, that's it. That's the straw. And who's to say that she meets Dirk and it doesn't work out? We're talking six years Al was gone. You're going to tell me that in six years, she's not going to meet someone else? Even if she tried to hold out hope as long as possible, Six years? Really? I don't know if I could do that. I mean, I would love to say that I would hold out hope for the rest of my life, but she's a young woman. She has the rest of her life. She has no way of knowing that Al's alive. I'm sure if she knew and she could somehow know that he was alive, she would have held out at least some sort of hope. But this has been two years and she's already losing it. So what if it didn't work out with Dirk? What if Jake, you know, separated them? Then what? What happens four years later? You really think that she's going to be able to hold out hope for six years? And as much as everybody's going to hate me for saying this, I feel like it's so selfish on Al's part of saying that. And I understand that he was suffering. And I, I feel like it sucks because he comes back and I feel like, if we had seen the scene where he comes back and she's like, sorry, that is what would be heartbreaking to me. The part where he comes back and she's like, dude, I already moved on. But I don't know if I could ask someone to wait for me for six years. 
I don't know if I could do that. I don't know if I could want someone to say that to me. But if she knew he was alive. Right. But she doesn't. So she knows this is two years out of the six. So she would have to wait four more years with her life like that, crying over flat tires and being alone, smoking and listening to music and reminiscing about her marriage. Like, that's so sad. And I hope I don't make anyone angry because I love Al and Al's probably my favorite character in this series because I love the character and personality that he brings to every episode. And I'm even the one who said that I think that this hall goes for his life because it seems like it always has something to do with him. But six years is a really, really long time to not have any hope and be alone. And she is alone. That moment we see her towards the end of the episode where she's just devastated, that's her life for the next four years if she does wait. So even if Sam convinced her to not be with Dirk, who's to say she wasn't with someone else who would have made it worse? Maybe another reason why they can't change that. I'm an uber romantic. And the first time I watched it, all I wanted was for Sam to be like, he's alive. There are so many ways this episode could have gone. He could have been like, I have word from so-and-so, a secret source, and he's alive, and this is where he is. And (laughs) someone could have went and gone and saved him or something. I mean, there were so many different ways that this episode could have gone. And the first time I watched it, that's what I wanted. I wanted Al and Beth to be together. The second time I watched it, I felt the same way. About the third and fourth time, I was like, I was listening more to the details. And I'm listening to, it's been two years, and he comes back in four more years. And I'm like, man, that's a really, really long time. And I understand true love and how heartbroken Al is. And I understand that. But you're asking your wife who you left, you chose to go. She said he chose to go. So he chose to leave. Obviously, he regrets that. But he chose to leave instead of being with her. He's home for four months, chooses to go out again. So coming from her point of view, She loves Al. She's waited for Al. She wants to be with Al. But Al, you chose to leave her. I know that that's your job. And I know that the Navy is your thing. You chose to leave her. But coming from her point of view, when your husband goes, I don't have to leave yet, but I'm going to leave early. And then he disappears. And you're alone for two years. And at that time, she was almost trapped by society because she's a wife of somebody who's MIA, and she's supposed to wait, even if it's a whole lifetime, because anything else would be looked upon as wrong, but she can't live the rest of her life without anyone. How long is it acceptable to be alone? How is it if your husband disappears, you have no idea where he is, and he's been missing and presumably dead? How long do you wait? Like after six years, if you didn't call me and you were gone and we had no idea where you were and you were probably dead, like what's the acceptable time limit? It's a very rough situation. Yeah. And I think she was lonely before that. Like I'm pretty sure she was like already on the way out the door before he went missing. Six years. That's insane. But that was Al's one true love. And I'm not trying to be the bad guy in this episode. You're not trying to be a Dirk. No, 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 because I I really, like I said, the first couple of times I watched it, I I just all I wanted was for them to be back together and for it to be solved and everything. But the more I watched it, the more I started to sympathize with her because like the look when Sam is leaving and she's like, "Okay, Dirk was here. 
you kicked Dirk out and now you're leaving and I'm going to be alone now instead of going on a date with you. Awesome. And her look as he leaves is just like, great, again. And that moment before when she had two men there vying for her, wanting to take her out, wanting to show her a good time, wanting to spend time with her so she wasn't alone. She was so happy and smiling. Then she was alone. But like her face, you can see it's just like, I feel so bad for her because it's like somebody who keeps giving her Christmas presents and taking them back away. Like the poor girl, like the same thing with the car. She had two guys trying to change her tires. She she didn't even want two guys. She just wants somebody to hold her and be with her. And and I'm sure that if she had the choice, she would pick Al. I'm sure that if someone said to her, you can have your husband back or you can have this new guy, she would be like, please just give me my husband back. But there's no way to know. And even if she held out hope for six more months or for a year, we still got four more years for her to be alone and miserable. Who's to say that she wasn't resentful of Al by the time he got back? I would like to think that in the character's future, because Al knows when and where she met Dirk. So I'm thinking that Al came back after and, you know, said, I'm back, Beth, and found out she's married and this guy. And I'm sure they sat down and had a long talk what exactly happened, because I don't think he was getting that information from Ziggy as much as he was making it up, because there was no exact figures and stuff. What are the chances? They're really good, Sam. Really, 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 really good. They're up there. Way up there. Even though she did move on and marry someone else, I'm thinking that they're very friendly still, but it still tears his heart out that she was the one for him and it didn't work out. See, the first time I watched it, I didn't really listen to the details of the years and stuff. And I was like, really? She met this guy, her husband comes back and she's like, sorry. But I mean, I guess, yeah, they sat down and she was like, I'm sorry. You know, I've been with him for four years. and But Al being gone for six years like i'm sure that that had some crazy effect on his mental state as well well beth even mentions that mia is just a euphemism for dead right hasn't found the remains yet she believes he's dead and like you said which i never viewed this part of the episode like this but when she says al at the end when she felt his presence you said it was probably that point where she knew he was dead because she felt almost his ghost let's say Yeah, I was like, guys, you messed this up worse than you would have if you left it alone. (laughs) Because then she feels him as if he's a ghost. And that look at the end, it's like the moment she realized he was dead, even though he's not. But I mean, like that look where she tilts her head, she's like, that was his ghost. And he was saying goodbye. Well, even before that, how she just cries instantly and like her whole uh, chest becomes concave and her shoulders go down and she has such a sense of loss. At that moment. Yeah. On a less depressing topic. (laughs) (laughs) To sum that up, Dirk's not necessarily a bad guy. No, I want to hate him. I do. A lot of people still do. Which is fine. Like, I totally really want to hate him. Like, I didn't even think about that. Like you said, Al never says, like, he beats her and he's not good for her and he just calls him names. But there's never a point where he says, (laughs) because you know what, if Dirk was bad guy... Al probably could have won her back later on. Obviously, yeah. So he's obviously not that bad of a guy because in present day, they're still together. And she almost had a choice to make again. And yeah, that's got to be rough. (sighs) Well, I have to also talk about Sam in this episode. Scott, Sam, super weird in this episode. He's usually way more charismatic. And even from the beginning of the episode... I mean, the funny part with the heels and the, you know, he's like, oh, no, not a woman again. 
But it's so unusual for him to hide behind a dumpster, number one. I know he just leaped, so he's like all discombobulated. But he hid behind a dumpster. It's totally not like Sam to hide. Like well, <laughs> from bullets. I would well, hide from bullets. I know, but he like didn't even hide and try and shoot. I guess he wasn't confused as to who he was shooting <laughs> yeah, at. When you leap in, are you the bad guy? Are you shooting back at who? Right. You don't know. But I felt that it was out of character for him to just like cower. Yeah, I, I understand the situation. But then he's just really awkward in the whole episode. Like he's like unsure of himself in the whole episode, which is really weird for him because normally he's more charismatic. I guess how the test was won, he was kind of really awkward too. That's what made me think of it. But like with Beth, he's so like not on his game. I mean, there's some points where he says like, you know, when they're at that uh, Mexican place where he says like, even a beautiful woman like you, you know, he has his moments, but like he could come up with so much better reasons for what he did. And he was so like dorky in all of it. And it was just so weird. And I feel like he could have left Beth so much better than I'll call you later. (laughs) If he said like, I don't know. I recognize your husband and I feel like this is wrong. (laughs) Probably would have worked and that would have been the truth. But leaving her with, I'll call you later. And then obviously Jake is never going to call her again because he doesn't know she exists. I just, I don't know. I feel like not that it wasn't good acting. I'm sure it was written that way, but I just feel like Sam was so awkward in this episode. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One being... At this point, I'm pretty convinced that the Leapy's personality is somehow Swiss cheesed in with Sam's personality. Right. And I wrote that in my notes that maybe it was Jake that was kind of awkward. And the other thing is that I really think that Sam, even though he doesn't remember Al's story on a conscious level, Al mentions later that Sam's brain is Swiss cheese and that's why he doesn't remember it, meaning that he did know it at some point. So he might not have connected the dots consciously, but he knew at some level, that this really wasn't his mission and what he's doing is wrong. Yeah, I knew that he had some, you know... If Al said, you can't let these two get together because he's abusive, he's an angry drunk and something happens in the future, but there's nothing. Yeah. I think he's going along with what Ziggy, or Al, really, is telling him what he has to do, but he doesn't feel like it's the right thing to do. And I think that's why he's so confused and also not himself. Right. As far as walking around in the heels back at the station, I thought that was funny because he had walked around in heels a lot prior to this leap. So just he's wearing the heels. He didn't take them off because he's <laughs> he's not undercover anymore. He's just like, well, these are my shoes because like in what price Gloria, he walked around in heels the whole time. So he's used to it by now. So it's just a pair of shoes. I totally didn't think that was weird. Is that weird that I didn't even notice that he was still wearing heels? Al mentions it and he goes, it's the heel, Sam. That's why they're whistling at you. Oh, oh, oh. I thought it was weird that Al knew that the painting girdle was on backwards. And Sam was like, I didn't even put it on. It was funny. <laughs> he was taking it off. He, he didn't put it on. The other guy put it on. Jake yeah. put it on. Uh, and it was funny how uh, Al said he would like to see Sam in the purple one. Yeah, it's weird. <laughs> even though he's seeing him as Sam. And even if he was seeing him as Jake, it's still a little weird going on there. But I think he was just making fun of him as well. Like the rest of the guys were yeah. giving him a little rib. Did you see Sam's look, the look on that he gave Al? He was just like, why am I here? Stop making those comments. On a weird technical note about the bra, he had padding in his bra, which when he leaps into a woman, he doesn't do that. But since he wasn't a woman and Jake was pretending oh, to be yeah. a woman, that's why the padding was there. But you wouldn't see that in other episodes where he is actually a woman. Right. So I don't know if you caught this, 
But you know, he's listing off the names with the lingerie. He's like, oh, so-and-so would look, Lori would look at this and Tina. Tina would look at this. And Al was like nodding and making, he's like, yeah, hmm. I feel like the, he listed off all of Al's wives or exes or something. And then he's like, who's Elsa? <laughs> like, My belief is since Sam grew up on a farm that Elsa might have been a cow. Isn't that Elsie the cow? Maybe. I don't know. That's what I thought of when I heard of it. I was just like, that's funny because of Frozen now. But I've never heard that name before. (laughs) And um, it was funny because Sam was just pulling random names out. And Al was like, who's Elsa? I don't know if Sam really was listing off Al's exes. But I I thought that was a cute little thing. And how he said Tina. Yeah. Which Skaggs uh, set up twice before that punchline that his wife's name was Lisa once in the car and then once again in the locker room if you weren't paying attention. Right. I had a feeling that maybe in one timeline Al had succeeded in getting Sam to change history and this might be another iteration of that to where someone who's trying to put right what once went wrong is also there maybe in Dirk maybe in Dirk's mother or maybe there's just a general God time fate whatever whispering in people's ears My example that supports this the most, I think, is when we see Dirk's mother walk away from Beth and then have a thought and then turn around and then invite Beth to dinner with her and her son. Yeah. To me, it feels like somebody is there to be a check and balance to Sam almost. Like Sam is messing this up unbeknownst to him because Al's making him do it. But someone or something else is also there trying to make sure that it doesn't get changed because who knows what worse could happen if something does change. That's a really good point. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, if whoever is running this show, so to speak. Donald P. audio. But I mean like God time fate or whatever. Whoever is running this quantum late project going on, that makes total sense because they're in control of where he's going and what he changes. So if he's changing the wrong thing, that's pretty cool that you saw that because that totally makes sense. I just have a feeling that no matter what Sam does to try to change it, some time correction, something is trying to change it back as he goes. That makes the episode so much better that you said that because I was thinking all along that like Dirk and her were meant to be together and that's just how it worked out. But it's so much better when you think about it that way that it's like a check and balance system. Part of me thinks that if there was a season six, it would have been Sam leaping into other people in that episode. Kind of Back to the Future too. Can you imagine? He'd be like, wait, no. Oh, man. That would be so sad to have to go toward, go against Yourself Al. and Al. Oh, my yeah. goodness. But who knows, you know? Yeah. Coincidentally, I am catching up on all the NCIS New Orleans ziz. And there was one where they found the jacket of an MIA. I was going to talk about that earlier. Yeah, but it was pretty cool that in this episode, he actually went and found him. Yeah. I don't think it was a nod to Quantum Leap at all, but a little interesting dink since we're on that episode. Good show if you're not watching it. Good show. Something to check out. Scott Bakula. It's weird to see him on Quantum Leap and then NCIS. Still a handsome dude, though. Very handsome dude. Very. But it's weird to be like, I swear he was just younger like yesterday yeah 25 years instantly depending <laughs> on what show you're watching but he can he pulls it off very well right i'm not saying anything against him because i i still enjoy looking at him 25 years later but i think he keeps his looks up because everybody he meets seems to get a selfie with him i find on, on instagram <laughs> if you look on instagram like everybody that's awesome though. it's nice that he does take pictures with everybody yeah did you notice in the preview that I put in the show for MIA had nothing to do with MIA. Yeah. I didn't want to spoil it for anybody. 
What was weird is I didn't know where MIA would come into play with the... The cops. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Action, you know, cops are in action, so maybe... Well, you told a war story at the beginning. So, yeah, at least you weren't spoiled, right? I definitely wasn't spoiled. And what's funny is when I learned that it was Beth Calavici, at first I was like, is that like his mom? Is that... I didn't know that he was missing in action, so... According to what people tell me, this is the first time we find out that Al's last name is Calavici. For some reason, I thought we heard it earlier. Pretty sure it says Calavici on his uniform in the one episode we see him as an admiral. Honeymoon Express, where mm-hmm. he's at the... Yeah, and they don't say Admiral Calavici. They might not. They might just say Admiral. I'd have to rewatch that again, which is great. But I'm pretty, pretty sure his name tag said Calavici on it. It's one of those things where unless you're a leaper and into it big time, you wouldn't maybe know that was his last name if you were watching it week by week on television back then. Well, also, we watched these episodes five times each. So if it was on the same <laughs> tag, we saw it. <laughs> we pick up the little things. Right. But I think it's almost for other people that don't know that Al's last name is Calavici. I think it's a little mini mystery that you're supposed to catch on and think that, hey, maybe that's Al's wife. But I think the exact moment when you're supposed to know is when you see the picture on the mantle of a young Dean Stockwell. I obviously knew before then because her last name was Calavici. But I, like I said, at first I didn't put it together. Once he started telling the story of there's a woman and I don't want her to make a mistake and this is what you're here to do. When he was pausing and making those faces and he got serious all of a sudden, I knew that it was something to do with him. So even though I didn't know it was his wife, I knew it had something to do with him. And at first I thought it was like his mom. And then I was like, no, it's 1969. That doesn't make any sense. But I knew it was personal to him. But we haven't dealt with his wives yet. We've only dealt with like his sister or or not personally, but heard about his sister or heard about his family life. So I wasn't even thinking that it was going to be about his wife. So I think that even if I didn't know the last name was Calavici, I probably would have caught on before the picture. And then that picture would have been like, oh, right. Me, I started breaking up a little bit in Seabride when... When he mentions his one true love. When he mentions his one true love, yeah. Definitely foreshadowing a little bit. A little bit, but in a good way. Because if you know, you know. But if you don't know, you dismiss it because you didn't really think that much of it. You're like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we'll find out more about that one day. You didn't think in a couple hours after we recorded the last episode, we went straight and watched MIA. Can I just say something really cool? I took a picture of me watching MIA and the notes that I had for this episode and Deborah Pratt commented on it. <laughs> still such a, <laughs> I'm still such a dork. That I know she's been on her show, and I know that like we're connected to her. Still super cool that she made a comment on my picture. What was her comment? Uh, she said, wonderful, daring actor, not a pretty woman, with a smiley face. <laughs> <laughs> it was the picture on the screen of Sam, I think looking over the car with the earrings and the makeup and the... Yeah, he didn't have his wig on, so no. you knew that it was like a dude <laughs> in drag, but... My response was... LOL, but he does look good in a skirt. <laughs> You're such a creeper. He does, but I think it's because he's wearing butt padding to make him look like a have a girl's butt or something. I have no other explanation for that. But the panty girl was on backwards. Maybe that's what you do to make it look like you have a butt, <laughs> but then you'd have bumps in your yeah, upper like, thighs. I don't know how that works. I don't know undergarments as much. I don't know. But, but that is very cool. Yeah. It's it's a little... um <laughs> geeking out a little bit. <laughs> geeking out. Well, it is, because she's amazing. I mean, without... Deborah Pratt, there would be only half Quantum Leap. I just thought it was pretty cool that like she knew that I was watching Quantum Leap 
and she posted. I don't know. I just thought that was cool. It, it would be one. Cool. It would be one thing if she liked it, but she like commented. Like she was on her phone on Instagram commenting on my photo. Pretty awesome. You got to yeah. love social media now. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're not only following Deborah Pratt; she's also seeing what you're posting. Yeah, it's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. I have a question for you. Okay, so in the normal process, I've never questioned this before. Sam leaps in. Al shows up somewhere in the beginning and says, this is what you're here to do. This episode, he doesn't even look at what he's there to do. He sees what day it is. And he said, I didn't run any other scenarios than my own. Does it come up with a list of things that could be changed on this day and this time? Like in San Diego, these are the things that took place today. And then the list of things he saw Beth meets Turk because he said, I didn't run any other scenarios than my own. Towards the end of the episode, when he's apologizing to Sam right, he by says the tree. That. Right, which I didn't understand because I thought the whole episode he was making it up. Right, but he says, I didn't run any other scenarios than my own. Other so, than my own. So he ran it through because he keeps checking to see if Sam has changed it. So he's looking at the hand link and he's trying to figure out what Sam's doing there. And all of a sudden his face gets serious. So is he looking at a list of possible scenarios that because when Sam leaps into other leapies, he says like it's 75 percent chance that this is what you're here to do. Well, is there like a list with like percentages of what Sam is there to do? How does Al determine? I know that Ziggy has something to do with it, but how does Al determine this is the, I'm asking for feedback here because I really don't know. And I know that you guys are just going to come up with some crazy Hayden um, thing <laughs> about how I'm screwing this up and not looking at it right or something. I don't know. But I mean, really, because I just thought he was making it up. I thought he was like what you said. They sat down. It clicked in his head. April 1st, 1969. We're in San Diego. This is where Beth is. And he just put two and two together in his head. But to me, it almost seems like he's looking at the hand link and he sees like possible things. Because what if there is like a list of what monumental things happen on this day in history? Kind of, you know, they have that like on your birthday, you can look up your birthday and see who else had a birthday that day or what monumental events took place in history on the day of, that you were born. My mom was born on the day that the Hoover Dam was finished. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. You can, I'm sure everybody has looked up their birthday. I think that was like everyone's school assignment at one point in your elementary career. To look up your birthday. To look up, right. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. So, (laughs) yep, Christopher (laughs) Philippus is laughing right now. So, I was born in the 90s and I've always had access to the internet. My grandparents were born in the 90s. (laughs) Not the 1990s. No, the 1890s. Okay, sorry. I just forgot that you didn't have the internet for a while. And yeah, in second grade, they sent me home. They said, AOL this. No, I think I was an adult when AOL came out. When I was in second grade, we had our computers at school. We had Tandy computers that were basically word processors. So anyway, so if anybody's ever looked up their birthday, <laughs> that's what I think, I don't know, the fourth time I watched it. Like, what is the process for this thing that he does, that he does in every episode and he decides, this is what you're here to do? Was it him making it up or was he looking at a thing and he said, oh, this is a pivotal moment in her life. This is the day. Because 25 years later, 
either something clicked in his head or he was looking at something and saw it listed there. My belief, my understanding of what happened, and I have no information other than what you have watching the episode, is that when he does say there's an 82% chance that you're here to fix this, I'm thinking that there's three other things with smaller percentages on the list that he might have to fix. And of course, this is interpretation because it's just blinky lights on a calculator looking thing. (laughs) But I would think there is a list. And the reason I think it jogged in his memory was because it's April Fool's Day. So he'll remember that probably associating Dirk with being a fool and April Fool's Day and 1969 in San Diego. So I think with those three things, he remembered what happened on that day with Beth and Dirk. But later on, he must have run scenarios. But I don't think right then Beth was anywhere near that hand link. Yeah, see, that's what I thought the first time. But he didn't even look up what was supposed to be. It just clicked in his head and he said, oh my gosh, this is the day we got to fix this right now. If something life-changing happened to me that ruined the rest of my life and I was able to change that, be back there on that day in that part of the country at that time and I could fix it, I think I would have tunnel vision and I believe I would block everything else out and I would just want to fix that. I think that's exactly what would happen. He wouldn't even look about skags and the shooting or anything else. I mean, it, it totally makes sense. I just, I don't know. I didn't know what the process was normally that he, because my understanding before this episode is that like Ziggy said, this is what he's here to do. Like he got a message and it said like, save partner from being shot and i know it's a vague thing because i usually have to figure it out and when it's going to happen and usually there's a countdown and you know it's more technical so i just assumed like ziggy had this wikipedia like website sent to the hand like in the form of blinky lights and al would be like okay it's june 7th 1982 and this is what we're gonna do today this is seriously how I worked it out in my brain that it had like the tabs like in Wikipedia where you can click on like history or characters in a show or whatever and you could click and find out all the information. Maybe that's how it would be today if it was remade. But once I saw this episode, I started questioning that because I don't know, maybe he just never asked Ziggy and that's where this whole thing is. I think Ziggy might have been trying to tell him and he just ignored it. Ignore your phone call. Yeah. Ignore. He just let it go to voicemail. He didn't want him to know he was ignoring him. I thought that was a good mislead with the opening of the episode. There's no way to know what that episode was going to be about when you watch Sam leap in in the previous episode. You know, I totally thought it was going to be like a guy in drag or a guy that I knew it was a guy. I don't know why. Maybe because when he looks in the mirror, you can kind of tell it's a guy or a homely woman. <laughs> I think that's what the recap said. I, I think you could definitely tell he was born a male. Right. So I didn't know if it was going to be like a gender equality thing. I think that's what I predicted in the last episode. I kind of led you there. Tom Quinn said, I see what you did there because I was trying to mislead you. Well, yeah, up until he goes to start talking to Beth and you hear Beth Calafici. I had just assumed it was going to be like something about the leapy, but it was definitely misleading, which is a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. You you don't want to know. You don't want to be spoiled. You hate the previews where you know the whole movie. You're like, I just got to stop watching it. Why is it four minutes long and I'm finding out the whole movie? The best four minutes of the movie. Now why go see the movie? There's a surprise twist at the end. Well, not anymore. There's not. (laughs) Exactly. But uh, as people have said many times that the job of the person making the promo is to get the person to watch the episode, not for them to enjoy it. So I even think the television 
promo for this, just out of my memory, has a lot to do with Al and Beth. And the person who actually puts together our promos for the next episode, he did that with this one. So I went in and remade another one because I didn't want <laughs> anybody to know. But that, like, was, that was good, but we don't want her to be spoiled. <laughs> that's our normal operating procedure. But I think even the other people that are following along with the show, I didn't want them to be spoiled either. Huh. That's why I like the leaps in because they can't really change it too much. They can chop right. it up a little bit, but they can't really change it that much. Right. And you can't, you don't really know if it's just the leap in. That's the good thing about it. And it's short. But it's enough to make you go, oh, I want to watch the next one. Yeah. So the character of Tequila, I like that he picked that name, like uh, Tequila and Benetti. Donald P. Belisario wrote this, but that character, he was played by Pat Skipper. I swore. Is that like Tequila and Boner? Yeah. Okay. But I didn't know that that guy's name was Tequila. I didn't either until I looked it up on IMDb. I don't even know if they mention it. I was like the character of tequila. I was thinking the tequila in the glass. And I'm like, I didn't really think the, the tequila played a big role in this show. But I know he drinks tequila. So maybe that's why they named him like Guy by Door. I'm sure that's not his name. <laughs> guy drinking tequila. Hippie. Somebody <laughs> named Hippie Boy. That might be his name. I don't know. But uh, he was played by Pat Skipper. But I could have swore it was Jake Busey in my memory. <laughs> he looks a lot like him, right? I want to know who in their right mind would leave those two with a baby. What was wrong with that woman? But she seemed like she was a good mom who was not... That got a gun? <laughs> I don't know. For somebody like she... with her baby and yeah, I don't left her baby hmm. with two guys that had the combined IQ of a walnut? <laughs> My theory is that one of them is the father, which doesn't make her any smarter than she was two seconds ago. But why else would she bail them out why else would she be leaving the baby with them? And I'm so I'm thinking that Tequila, this dude that you're talking about, is the father. That was my guess because he spoke Spanish, kind of. He said she only speaks Mex. Right. He's an ass. Can I say ass? <laughs> I, I don't think know. so. Okay. So he's a complete... like a donkey, right? Yeah. But I think that that would be the only reason. Either she's dating Tequila, dude. That's weird. That she it does might be an illegal alien and they're protecting her. They might have something over her. My whole thought on that is one horrible mom. You don't want guns and babies. Again, guns and babies in the same episode, close to the same shots. Not the same shot, luckily, but close to the same shots. I was hoping they were going to shoot each other in the bar, but... But I think one of the things, like if we would have had the normal wrap-up like we normally do where Al's looking at the hand link and he's saying, oh, this is what happened, Sam. You saved Skaggs and he was able to get Rosalie help so she wasn't in such a bad situation and the baby turned out all right. She went to college and became a doctor. So that might have been another good thing that Sam did by saving that whole situation. Right. At first, when that whole shooting situation happened and Rosalie was freaking out, I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? And I was like, oh, yeah, you didn't think your friends were going to get shot and killed. But there was guns and a baby. I don't think she cared about her friends. She was scared. She was put up to this. Like, she's stuck in the middle of whatever ring this is going on. It must be so bad to let her baby be involved in a trap. But, like, you could see how relieved she was that there were no longer guns pointed at her child. That's why she cried. Not because her friends were killed. I don't think they're her friends at all. I think that she's somehow being blackmailed or she got knocked up by that guy and she's, like, trying to make it work. I don't know. But she bailed them out and she got them guns. I mean, she looked like she was an attentive mom that didn't have any help. But still, like, I digress. You shouldn't have your baby in a bar with guns. And when the guys are pointing the guns at each other, going, boom, huh, 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 boom. Yeah, I that's was hoping you, that's that, what, like, they shoot they each would, other. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in real life, that's what would happen. But that's the time you take your baby and go, I'll be back. 
but y- you don't come back. Yeah, I don't know her story. It'd be interesting to find out her story. But... In season yeah. seven, maybe we do. There's a lot of really ignorant people out there that have children. So I would love to say that that's, that's weird that there's a mom with a baby and a gun, but that didn't even seem unbelievable to me. I was just like, wow, that sucks. Yeah, if you, if you follow the news, that's not unbelievable, really. But notice the cop grabbed the baby and was like, the baby's okay. So, oh, I'm so happy for the baby and for Skaggs. Yeah. Hopefully the mom got out of that situation too. I think we can assume she did because Skaggs got her the help she needed. Hopefully. A technical question I have. Okay. Sam leaps in and he's wearing makeup. Right. Jake's not wearing makeup. Sam's wearing makeup. I think they're both wearing makeup. Right. But when Sam normally leaps into a woman wearing makeup, he's not wearing makeup when he leaps in, even if the aura of the leapy is. Why does he have makeup on? Because usually, like, uh, let's say in what price, Gloria? But if he didn't have makeup on, it wouldn't fit the story. That's why. Okay, that's the real reason. But let's, That's let, the real reason. Let's go in uh, geek fanboy girl and uh, think about this. In what price, Gloria, when he leaps into Samantha Stormer, when he first leaps in, he's not wearing makeup. He's in the bathtub, though. Right, but she's wearing she's wearing makeup, but he's not wearing makeup. But it wouldn't fit the story for him to be wearing makeup in the bathtub. But Samantha Stormer was. Just because she's a woman on screen. Even if they're not wearing makeup, they're wearing makeup. But follow me. After Sam bathes and his aura bathes, then there's no more makeup on his aura. So for people to see makeup on his aura, he has to apply it on himself. So he must have leapt in from somewhere else when he just coincidentally had makeup on. Maybe from a female. I don't know. I think you're being crazy. It's kind of like the... It wouldn't have worked if he didn't have makeup on. I agree. And earrings and fake lashes. Okay, so that's the real reason what's the in-universe reason can you think of one no but i think that it's different because he's a man in drag and not a woman for some reason (laughs) i feel like no because i feel like okay but you can't think of a reason (laughs) it's the same thing with like the padding in the bra though right jake put the padding on but sam's wearing it oh wow mind blown (laughs) i'm gonna think about this one and get back to you but yeah, why wouldn't the padding in the bra, and the bra for that matter, and the panty girdle be any different than the makeup? I hope we get some awesome feedback in this episode. You guys better write in and give us feedback because we're leaving a lot of these crazy theories out there that we need you guys to answer. I want to know what you're thinking. But you know what? It sets up for really an interesting shot later on when Skaggs is telling him the story of the naked baby in Vietnam and... Scott slash Sam is standing there looking all serious, listening to the story. That's what I have on my Instagram. <laughs> that's that, that's that the picture. scene. That's the scene right there where he's got fake lashes and lipstick on and some blue eyeshadow, which he still has on later when he's fixing the tire in the car. Now, people at the time never would have noticed that, but luckily they did it anyway. So we. I was going to say, <laughs> why would they keep that on? If because people wouldn't have even seen that. It's probably. I, a totally did, I different missed it day, the first three times. Just put a little bit on to say that it was there, and he didn't get it. That was off. not a little bit. That was a lot of blue <laughs> eyeshadow, buddy. It's more than I normally wear. You got to really have the face to pull off blue eyeshadow. Yeah, I'm no Scott Bakula. I think I I even hashtagged fake eyelashes on uh, Sam Beckett fake eyelashes on Instagram. A big topic in this episode, music. Just so you know, what we did is the first time Heather watched this, we watched it on Netflix, which is the most intact version there is, to my knowledge, available in the U.S. It's very title music heavy, the original. It's very good. Right. Then we watched it again like that, 
And then we watched it with the elevator music from the Region 1 DVDs. Which wasn't all elevator music, but most. Mostly. I think uh, Heard It Through the Grapevine still made it. Right. I think that was the only one, though. Then the last time we watched it with the real music again. Are you as appalled as the rest of the Quantum Leap community at the music substitution in this episode? I wouldn't say appalled. I'm going to say more people off now. <laughs> okay. If I had watched the elevator music version first, I wouldn't have realized I was missing anything. Without seeing the original version, I don't think it's missing anything. With that said, watching the original episode first was definitely a must because you can see how much more of an emotional response you get with the right music. And Suzanne Smiley actually wrote an article about this and it's amazing and so well written. And I'm sure she can explain it so much better than me. But when Al is walking around the house and he's just looking at the house, it's a very short scene. In the original version, they play a song. I think it's called like This Man Loves You or something like that. It's a specific song they picked to play while he's walking around the house. It's a very short moment in the episode, but it's a great example. Elevator music, not as emotional. They play the ghost song. I don't know what song that's called. Unchained Melody. Really? That's what it's called? It's always been the ghost song for me because I've, I've seen that movie a ton. And that's the song where they're like sculpting. And Would you be surprised to learn that this episode aired before Ghost was released? No, I actually kind of thought that that would be right. When I was watching the episode, I said, you know, I bet you this came out before Ghost. And that's just a weird coincidence or someone copied off of it. But he's not a ghost, so it kind of doesn't really fit. But for all intents and purposes, he's basically a ghost. And that's elevator music when it means a lot, especially if you've seen the movie Ghost. Even though I know that it's not connected, it still kind of represents the same thing in this episode. It cues that emotion for you. It really does. Right. And Georgia at the end, obviously, it's a different, it's a completely different thing because he mentions Georgia in the beginning and getting her that song. So when she puts it on, it's like she knows he's there and it's their song and it, this is their time. When it's elevator music, not as big of a deal. So I can totally see why everybody's appalled from their standpoint. And as Susan explains in her article, I see why they had to do what they had to do. And obviously, it's good that they kept heard it through the grapevine because it would have been really silly if he was singing that to another song if they had the choice to pay for one song though it should have been georgia right that was my my next point was they should have at least paid for those two if you're going to release an episode where they mention a song title in the beginning and play it at the end you should at least pay for that one and it's the pivotal song of that whole arc of the series it's the end of the episode where everyone's crying you should at least put in the right music until recently with Netflix. There was a VHS copy that was digitized and put on the internet in the early 2000s when people had dial-up. And uh, <laughs> it was really blurry, but that was the only copy that survived with the original music intact. So it's good we have a source now where oh, we can yeah. actually see it. I've talked to a lot of people to do with Quantum Leap, behind the scenes, production people. I usually talk to them about the music. And from what I understand, the music replacement isn't in anyone's control that would like to see the original music in there. The producers, creators, directors, writers. I don't even think Don Belisario 
right? He has nothing to do with the music replacement. It's not up to him. It's totally a... I'm sure he was like, no, I want that music back in there. It's the companies that owns it. So that's all on them. So hopefully they do the right thing in the future and pay for... At least if they don't get the rest of the episodes right, they should get that one right. I feel like... In certain circumstances, there should be a different form of action in order to make it happen. Like, because this was made in an age where there wasn't online streaming and DVD, Blu-ray releases, there should be some kind of, like, plan that they can sign up for, some sort of payment option to get some sort of rights. Because I feel like it's not fair to ruin an episode because a production company doesn't want to spend the money. I feel like everybody loses out and it also takes the quality of the show down. And like I said, you can watch it and not know you're missing something. But if you saw the original and then saw the new one, you could tell what a huge leap it is. (laughs) You could tell what a huge leap it is different in emotional pull. Like the emotion in the episode completely changes. If it's elevator music, you're like, wow, yeah, it's nice. But then you get a song with the lyrics that go to the episode, that go to the moment that you're witnessing. And that was so carefully picked for this episode. And it's replaced by elevator music. It's pretty depressing. I think it makes a difference in the episode because the acting is still amazing. The story is still amazing, but it's not perfect. It's missing something. Well, it's like the music is another character in the episode. Exactly. It totally adds the ambiance to the scene. I think it makes the difference between something sad that happened and something heartbreaking. Well, have you ever seen that meme where it says, I wish that I had background music so I knew what was going on in my life? <laughs> There's, I don't know what it, what it says exactly, but it says something like, I wish that I could hear the background music going on in my life so I knew what to expect next. Because, you know, if there's scary music coming up, then you know that there's like something's going to jump out at you. Side note, yeah, I'm a little weird. <laughs> yeah? So when I discovered that Pandora had musical scores on one of their channels, I had a musical score everywhere I went in my pocket. <laughs> Like, for a week, I played it. People were like, what is that? I'm like, oh, that's my score. You're such a dork. It's so cool, though. Sometimes it was appropriate, other times not. (laughs) But it is possible now to have your own scoring as you go. But, of course, it would be replaced in the movie of your life by elevator music. Only in America. Does anybody know who uh, wrote that music? No. Nobody ever admitted to it. What, the elevator music? Mm Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, the people who do that are considered... um, Kind of almost like uh, when you cross a picket line, a scab, because mm-hmm. you're violating the art hmm. for money. Yeah. Yeah, it's not looked upon as favorable. Nobody goes, hey, I'm the one who did that. Plus, it's not that great of music. <laughs> Nobody's like going to claim it. It's not horrible. It's better than I can do, but it's not well, the right. same. Going back to when Al was walking around the house, I really thought that was a great scene of him just looking around his house that was from 1969, where him and Beth lived. And there was no lines. There was no story that took place in that scene. So it could have easily ended up on the cutting room floor. But it was so necessary. I'm so glad that it didn't. Right. Because it adds another, another level to that episode. And when Sam walks in, an owl quickly disappears. That's another reason why Sam is a little strange in the episode, because Al is acting strange. Yeah. So do you think Sam understood all that medical jargon that Beth was talking about and just didn't let on because he was supposed to be a cop and not a doctor? I didn't understand the medical jargon. (laughs) And I watch a lot of medical shows. I looked up Pseudomonas 
It's like a bacteria. Bacteria in your blood. Like today we would have said septic, but yeah, it's some kind of bacteria. I'm thinking if your skin gets burned that badly, you just have too many chances of infections getting in there. Right. Pretty sad. At one point I thought she said acetaminophen, but it sounded wrong. <laughs> and then I listened to it again and I was like, no, it's totally not the right letters in the order that they're in. No. Other things in the episode that I noticed, Sam's coveralls. They really weren't too small for him, but he acted them small and he did amazing at it. Which is weird. Like, why wouldn't they just make small coveralls for him? Yeah, he probably got them and were like, these aren't too small. No, we got them in your size. But if you read the script, they're supposed to be small. So he kind of pulled up the sleeves and he put his shoulders up and his head down and he's going, oh, it's really small. He can act close small. (laughs) That's acting. You just want to talk about coveralls. That way your pants don't fall down. Yeah. Al's transformation throughout this episode is really amazing. He goes from happy-go-lucky, joking in the beginning, to, like you said, just a crash to an emotional wreck. And they must have filmed this episode in chronological order because he lets his whiskers grow out. It showed to me the level of commitment Dean Stockwell had for this episode. Oh, yeah. I mean, it looked literally like he hadn't showered in days. He probably hates this episode. He wasn't happy about it. Yeah. I've heard a lot of actors that have to go into like a, you know, they have to think about being broken up with or so-and-so dying or, or something that triggers this sort of emotion. And I'm sure if you think about Al, Al is normally happy-go-lucky, even in the beginning of this episode. So even though he's lost Beth, it's been 25 years. So, you know, he has compartmentalized it enough that he can act normal. Well, once it's activated... Once he sees it and knows what today is and knows what a pivotal moment this is, he unravels. Well, that's pretty much how it works for any of us, too. I mean, it's such a real thing. So he probably went in the week of shooting and had to go into that part where he didn't want to be. It makes you think of and makes you appreciate the art so much more. You watch like performance like um, Anne Hathaway and Les Mis and you just think like what she had to go through to get to her role. You know, there's so many actors that take their whole life and everything that they've experienced and turn it into their role. And those are the amazing actors. And Al did such a good job in this episode. It makes me sad for Dean Stockwell that he had to go through this to get this great episode out, but he did it. For me, if you want the definition of acting, you look at Dean Stockwell in this episode. Oh, yeah. And you also need the right role to be able to act like that. Because look at Susan Dial. She was the girl with the funny nose in Seinfeld. Was she really? Yeah. (laughs) And um, she can act, right? Oh, yeah. But, you know, it's a funny little cute part and it's a funny episode. But then you get to the part of Beth and she's just such an emotional wreck. It shows you how much range that these actors have that sometimes they might not even be able to use all their skills until they get a part like this. Well, and Beth is such a complex character because she's such a fighter. And she even says, like, I'm not usually such a baby. But, you know, going back to the two years alone, she works with burn victims. That's got to be horrible to watch people die every day. I couldn't do that. I couldn't get attached to people and take care of people every day just knowing that they're going to die. Like, you have to be there to look in their face and say, you're going to be okay. We're just going to hold out hope, knowing that the chance of them surviving is slim to none. So she played that pain, but she had her moments where she smiled and she was still so optimistic 
throughout the episode. I mean, she still had such a good outlook on life considering what she's been through and what she was going through that you understand the complexity through her acting. And it was it, it was another great performance in this episode. I loved her smile, especially in the bar when they're having the beer and chips and salsa. And mm-hmm. she's just smiling and she thinks it's funny that he was trying to pick her up. And she like smiles and drinks the beer. That was a... And her dimples, oh, it's just... I loved it. You have a thing for dimples? I must. (laughs) (laughs) She's a very beautiful woman. and uh, Oh, yeah. Amazing actor. Everybody did a great job. For real. Bravo, guys. For real. Exactly. Encore, please. And uh, I think she was the sexiest when she was getting changed. And she comes out of the room with the shoulder strap down and puts it up. For some reason, that is so sexy to me. I don't know why. You're Al. You're so (laughs) (laughs) predictable. I am Al, actually. I know. That's what's funny about it. Um, I think that that's a good scene for her. And I, I'm glad they did that because it actually kind of shows her vulnerability. And it's at the right moment where she sees that something's wrong. It was so well put together, this whole episode. I feel so bad for Beth because she just gets almost teased by people. Right. Christmas presents and then taking them away. Exactly. It's it's pretty sad. Can you unwrap these Christmas presents for me and then I'll just take them back from you. In the next watching of the whole series of Quantum Leap, are you going to start to cry early like I do? I might. I don't. I, I'm sure that that's probably what's going to happen. I think we're going to have to do a rewatch because there's there's a lot of things that I think that you have a different reaction to because you've seen the whole series. Just like I said that with Jimmy and this episode, I think that not that it's not an emotional episode on its own, but I feel like knowing the rest of Al's story will make it a more emotional story for me. One funny moment in the episode was when Sam shows up and Dirk's already with Beth. And Dirk says, you didn't give me a ticket, did you? And he's like, thought about it. It's like my favorite part of the episode. I can only laugh at that when I'm taking notes and not into the episode. Because when I'm into the episode, emotional wreck. But when I'm trying to be objective and not absorbed into it, I laugh at that part every single time. I love that part. I love, see, that's like the Sam Beckett. That's Sam. Like, and that's awesome. Or that's actually probably Scott coming through. (laughs) The look on Scott's face. When he says that, thought about it. And you can see him behind the And glasses. he's like not laughing, but he's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a great part. Yeah, I, I like that part. I like the little funny parts. Even though it's such a heavy episode, it's great that they can add those little parts in there. Do you think that Sam started, um... Yes, he did. <laughs> he, he really did. Uh, that's his mantra, I think. Yeah. Mine's different. What's yours? Owa tagu siam. And I just keep repeating that. Is that a Star Trek reference? Not at all. Punky Brewster. Oh. <laughs> okay. That's, anyway. Is it really? Yeah. That's weird. I know. I have a question. The MIA bracelet. I know that in the trivia, it says that MIA bracelets didn't come out until later than this episode. But is that like, that was the thing that they gave you or like you bought one in memory of your husband being MIA or like you got one when they told you he was missing I don't know, but I th- I think something like that, that makes sense. Like you would get one in support of your loved one that's missing in action. I just felt like it was such a, I guess it's something that you wear, like, so people know that you have the loved one missing. Almost like a, one of the black armbands, but you wear it for longer, I'm thinking. Yeah. And even if it did come out after, I mean, I'm sure she could have had one made or someone would have made one for her. But Dirk's mother, maybe mother says, oh, your MIA bracelet. Well, but it could have said MIA on it. Could have. It's it's a small inconsistency, and it's understandable at the time it was written. But close enough. 
I, it's funny because I'm having trouble picking out inconsistencies in this episode. I even like I'm getting mad at you for picking out inconsistencies. Like I'm like, it doesn't matter. I know. <laughs> Make there, it go away. There's there's some things that I could pick apart in the episode, but but I keep just I keep trying to good. justify them. I think there was a mention of her hair being different lengths, and I'm like, yeah, but it's fine. She just did it differently. <laughs> I'm so defensive of the inconsistencies in this episode. From shot to shot, her hair does change lengths, but so does. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so does uh, Dorothy's in The Wizard of Oz. But if you have never noticed it, you don't notice it. So next time you're watching Wizard of Oz, think of me. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, it happens. And I'd say if 10% of the episode has mistakes in it, it's 120 percent episode so it's still more than a hundred too much math i i think <laughs> you lost me at whatever number you just said this episode if other things that i would nitpick i am totally letting go because it was just that amazing of an episode i really was telling him to stop on the last time we were watching it i was especially with the hair just like it doesn't matter stop it when you're reading the trivia i don't even know if i'm going to go through all the trivia like i normally do because a lot of it seems nitpicky to me and i'm defensive of this episode <laughs> so you like this episode a little bit yeah i need to talk about the fact that there's a lot of attractive men in this episode <laughs> dirk i don't think he was my top pick not that there's anything wrong with him tequila no i was thinking like skaggs was pretty oh. you know for a detective dude he was pretty cute and even jake was cute jake was pretty cute and that's probably helped in the beth situation you don't like boner no he actually kind of reminded me of edge but i think edge is more attractive than him Mm, adam copeland yeah but i think there was a lot of handsome men in this episode i have a very limited amount of men crushes and scott bacula is one of them well scott's in every episode total man crush on him i think i already mentioned that even 25 years later he still looks good right yeah i just they didn't really get recognized for their attractiveness so i was just you know pointing it out good casting in this episode yeah so I felt really bad for Al and his tiger cage story. He really, when they're talking about the devil and, and, and they're, they're in the locker room and he talks about being in the cage, I felt really bad. Like, that's horrible. One of the main messages in this episode, I think, is war is bad. I think there's never really a, <laughs> an episode of anything that's like, war is great. Let's keep doing this. I don't know. Some, some movies and things glorify war, but I think this episode shows just the things that can happen from war and how people's lives can be ruined. Yeah. I'd like to buy the world a Coke and sing in perfect harmony. Right. The following conversation after that, when Sam says, according to Ziggy, and he kind of pauses, you get to see those little like hints that he's just BSing <laughs> all that information. But I like the part where Sam says, you know, I, I, she cried and I held her all night. And I was like, you did what? You were with her all night? And he's like, you of all people. <laughs> I know it wasn't a funny part, but like, I love that part where he's like, he starts talking and then he stops and he's like, really? You, you, the one who's always telling me to sleep with all the girls I leap with, you know, like I leap into all with these women and they're always throwing themselves on me. And you're always like, come on, Sam, rip her dress off, take advantage of her. And I spend the night with the girl you tell me to spend the night with. And But that was a cute little, you of all people. It was like, if you didn't know, it would have been funny. Yeah. Still giving Al crap about his womanizing. Yeah, every episode. Once you found out, now that you know the source of why he's a womanizer, that's why nothing ever worked out for him because they weren't Beth. Do you feel a little more sympathetic towards him? I never disliked his womanizing. 
I think you're a womanizer too, but <laughs> the Britney song's like in my head right now. Yeah, I, I never had anything against his womanizing before. I I thought it was funny and it was you know, it was a fun plot point kind of ongoing storyline thing. So I, I, I sympathize with him completely with this episode I, I at all costs. So I think I feel more for him than I did before. And I don't think that I ever disliked any of his actions before. So I'm just a bigger fan. But I think that's the point, right? You're a leaper. And I have to say, that was a pretty handsome shot of Al on the on the mantle. Photographed by Roddy McDowell. Handsome dude, that Dean Stockwell. Yes. I told you, lots of handsome dudes in this episode. Yeah, they, they tend to put pretty people on television. Where do they do that? <laughs> people we want to look at, they, they put on TV, so we look at them. And then people that we don't want to look at, they have podcast. Oh. oh <laughs> uh. Son, you have a face for radio. Thank you. I think that means I'm good looking. I'm going to start a podcast. <laughs> and I, I talked about this before, but when Sam stops Al at the end and he says, don't you dare close that door. If you close it, don't open it again. He closes the door and he steps forward and he's got tears in his eyes and he's like ready to break at that point. He's not, he didn't even have to say anything. And have you ever been in one of those situations, like if anybody talks to you and asks that, like, don't ask me what's wrong, because if you ask me what's wrong, I'm going to cry. I'm going to, I'm just going to cry and just leave me alone and don't ask me because right now I'm doing everything I can to hold it together. And if you ask me what's wrong, I'm going to lose it. If somebody says, are you okay? That's the end. Yeah, I'm done. And, you know, things get to you. And I've experienced that so many times where I'm just like, don't ask me. I've leave me alone. I will be okay. I just, the crying has to go away. And if you ask me and I tell you, I'm going to lose it about two words in, like I'm going to lose it. And then I'm going to have a crying face. And so when, when I saw him like that, that's what I thought of. I thought like he was at his point where like, he's going to lose it. And he does, I mean, he, he does. And he starts telling the story and the moment when Sam has to turn away. I mean, Sam's not walking away from him. Sam turns away because he is watching his best friend unravel and knows that he technically can help and can't at the same time. Like, that's got to be so rough. It's got to tear Sam apart, too. Right, because he's looking at his best friend saying, you know, we can't do it. I know you want to. And I, and I would love to help you, but we can't help you. And I, you know, think about telling your best friend that. Think about telling your best friend, like, I know that this sucked for you and this was a horrible moment in your life and we can't change it. Like, that's got to be horrible. And you're looking at your friend who hasn't showered. He's wearing the same outfit, which with Al is a big deal because Al always is pretty fashion forward in his episodes. He at least has four outfits an episode, usually. So he's been wearing that purple outfit the whole time. He only had one this whole episode and he hasn't shaved. He obviously hasn't showered. He probably hasn't slept. He's probably been stalking Beth, staring in her window the whole time. That and maybe working day and night trying to figure out how to fix it. Right. And I think the moment that really seals in that whole section for me of the story where they're talking outside of Beth's house is he's like, you know the rules. And he's like, no, no, I don't. And he acts like a child. Like he's like, no, I don't want to know. I don't want to be mature. I don't want to be logical. I just want you to fix it. You know, like, I don't, I know, I, he know, he knows, but he's like, no, 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 I don't. No, no, no. And like, you can hear the like childish, and, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, 
I just, if you were to explain to a six-year-old, we can't have ice cream for breakfast because that's, and and the six-year-old is like, no, I don't know that that's a thing, you know? That's really kind of what that meant. And that was so emotional. And then, of course, when he says, Sam, why did you make me do this? And that's where the whole tragedy of the episode really comes to a head, I think. And the way he says it, like, Sam, why did you make me do this? Amazing episode. Yeah. Something more about that scene is under the tree when they're across the street from Beth's house. To me, it looked like when they originally shot that episode that maybe the scene where he goes inside came sooner because after Sam goes to the bar and saves Skaggs and the baby and all that, they come back right to the same exact spot that they were talking before. So it's kind of odd. Well, I think Al was just still there because Al had been there. I love that. Well, Al had been there throughout the episode. So he kind of just stayed there. And watching her Sam house came back right. oh, i like that that makes me feel better that's how that. i well that's how i saw it to me i was just like probably because it was just they did the scenes with the same setup because it takes a long time to change a setup but i well, love what you're saying yeah he was there earlier in the episode looking at the house i think when sam showed up the other time and that's as close as he wanted to be when beth was in there mm-hmm. i like that how he's close but he can't bring himself to do it until and sam, then sam yeah So overall, your final thoughts on MIA? Horrible. I mean, no, it was, was, I think this is so far my favorite episode. That's good to hear. Considering before it was the first episode, we have now graduated to my next favorite episode. Uh, It's it's one of my favorites. A lot of people's favorites. Yeah, and I completely understand why. and, And it's very emotional and sad and... It definitely pulls at your heartstrings a little bit, but I, I love the amazing acting and I love the emotional element and I and I just, it's a great episode. And I love the episodes where we learn more about our two main characters, learning more about Al, even though it was sad, you know, and, and I loved Beth. I love, I love her as a character. She's my new peg, not replacing her, but she's just added to the list of awesome women characters in Quantum Leap. As promised earlier, we have an interview with Susan Dial. So without further ado, let's talk to Susan Dial. Susan Dial has been performing ever since she can remember. Susan's first big break was replacing Amanda Plummer in You Never Can Tell on Broadway in New York City at Circle in the Square. Her first television role was on The Cosby Show, where she appeared in two episodes. That same year, she landed the role of Claudia Garrison in J. Preston Allen's television series Hot House. She starred in the TV movie Road Raiders, working with Tia Carrera. She also guest starred in the television drama Her Deadly Rival, with Harry Hamlin and Annie Potts. Memorable television series guest spots include John Larroquette's baby sister on Night Court, Robert Picardo's love interest on Star Trek Voyager, and in the Seinfeld episode, The Nose Job. She played a hooker on Wings, a nun on Murphy Brown, and she was a killer on Touched by an Angel. Other television roles enabled her to work with Andy Griffith, Dick Van Dyke, Hal Holbrook, Tay Diggs, Megan Mullally, Peter Strauss, and Mark Harmon. She was in some recent short films, Family Man, Dear Superhero, and Hostage. And she has an upcoming role in the movie Basement. But us leapers know her best as Beth Calavici, Al's wife and the great love of his life, in the Quantum Leap episode, MIA. Susan, I'm so excited to talk to you today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for asking. How are you? I'm good. I'm very excited to talk to you. I think one of the main pivotal characters in the whole series of Quantum Leap, Al's relationship with your character, Beth. 
could you tell me about how you got the part of Beth and the episode MIA? You know, I just had a standard audition for it, you know, where you get the sides ahead of time and then work on them and then go the next day and uh, audition. And, uh, you know, it was a lot of material at that time, many scenes, emotional, and the show is such a great show. I was really excited when I got the part. And also to work with uh, Scott Bakula and Dean, I mean, it's just an amazing experience for me. <laughs> um, I just, you know, from the moment I was on the set, they were just wonderful to me. And it's like stepping into a family, and I immediately felt a connection with both of them. And, you know, they're just really lovely, creative people and very collaborative and supportive and you know that I know the scene when I had to when I'm smoking and playing the music thinking of my husband and then we do the slow dance it was just you know it was just like an amazing experience it was like really I felt like I was being visited by a ghost of someone and he's just such a wonderful actor uh, he just gave so much as did Scott it just—it felt very emotional, and and it felt like it was a story that would be remembered. And you know, then when you see the whole series, it was a very important part for my character, and certainly for those two characters as well. But it was—I I, just—I really enjoyed every aspect. You know, working with everybody, John Belisario, uh, you know, brilliant creator, producer, and the director. It just every aspect of it. Were you surprised how big your character did become, becoming almost a fan favorite? Yeah, I was surprised. But then, you know, in watching it, every time, even now, when I watch the episode, it's just, it's still, there's so much feeling that comes from it. And um, that it was understandable to me also because he was such a beloved character. And I often meet fans and they, you know, they still, it's like they saw it yesterday. Because it, 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 it does, it makes you feel, and to me, that's one of the most important aspects of storytelling is when it can make you feel, and then you remember. You remember the feeling that you had when you watched it. You remember the feelings that you have from watching those characters, and I think that that's why um, it, I think you really cared about Beth, and of course, you already cared about those two characters. But when when the audience cares about the characters, I think that that makes a huge difference in they're remembering the feelings that they had from watching the show at that time. I think you nailed it. I mean, it's such a well-written episode and well-acted that you almost remember it as being real. It feels real when you're watching it. Yeah, it's funny. In acting it, um, it felt real to me. (laughs) I remember feeling, you know, like really getting, feeling those feelings. And I think that that's part of working with those two actors because they give you so much and they feel they're feeling what they're doing at the time. They're not just, you know, acting. They, they're really, you, you feel what they're feeling. And so then I think that it just becomes this visceral experience where you, it's like it's, like it's actually happening. You know, I, I, thought, I just thought it was a really special show and every episode was so unique and the guest actors that they had on it. And, you know, there was always so much heart in that show and you cared so much. And, and and then they had you know mean characters that you really hated, <laughs> and you know I just feel that it was it was a really beautifully done show. That moment when you're dancing with Al, that probably for me at least, and a lot of people I've talked to has really just makes the whole series that much better. Oh well, thank you. I, yeah, it felt that way to me, and um, 
I, I mean, I, I, I'll watch it now and I still just, I start to cry. Like, it's almost like it's a memory. I mean, it is an actual memory because I was there doing it as an actor, but, um, the way he was acting was just so moving that it really touched me. And so now, even now, it's like I watch it and it's like, oh, I wonder how he's doing. I wonder what he's up to. He's such a lovely man and he's mm. so talented and, you know. I'm glad to hear that I'm not the only one that cries when they watch that. No, no, I cry every time. Actually, to be honest with you, whenever I hear the song, Georgia, oh, yeah. I'm like taken right back to that moment with him and it's you know and I and I every time I hear that song I start to cry it, I, it's it's the weirdest thing have you heard about the whole controversy of them uh, replacing that song on the region one DVDs have people told you about that yes and I I've uh, heard it myself because I you know I wanted to buy it to have it to own it and then I was so disappointed <laughs> I was really I was like how could they do this it's like it seemed like a crime to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I don't understand all the logistics of it, and um, you know, in terms of buying songs and whatnot. But I, it, it was really pretty pretty disappointing to me. Yeah, luckily, I think Netflix has the right music. Oh, that's good to know. Because I just watched that today. Another thing I wanted to ask you about: I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and you were on Next Generation Voyager. Could you tell me a little bit about Next Generation? That was wonderful because, you know, I was really excited to get cast in it. And, you know, I had this little sexy thing with Jonathan. And then the character gets killed and it was such a great <laughs> setup because you weren't expecting it at all. And I thought, oh, no, really? My big chance on <laughs> Star Trek. And I, um, but even so, even so, it was a, a small part. It was, it was still such a great group of people to work with across the board. I mean, just great collaborators on, in every aspect from makeup to, you know, camera, to directing, to producing, I mean, across the board, just a, a really great group of people. It was like a family, and they just welcomed you in. Even if you're only there for a few minutes before you <laughs> perish, <they're, laughs> they were just very welcoming. Yeah, it was great. That's awesome. How was Voyager for you when you had played the Vidian, Dr. Danara Pell? That was an, oh, that was an ama- amazing experience. Um, it was just, you know, I'm working with um, Bob Picardo, who's just lovely and quirky and just such a wonderful person, very caring and kind and supportive. It was a lovely experience and getting to play that type of a character who's so hideous and, you know, takes parts of all these different kinds of animals in order to survive and and then having the holograph where I'm at my uh, redeemed old self. It was it was a it was a beautiful story. I, once again, I, I just felt like it was great storytelling, and everybody on the show was just wonderful to work with. The, you know, I had a long time in makeup when I had to be either the the dean with all the different various animal parts, and then um, and as my character when I was back to my normal self, that I still had the forehead and everything. Um, so it was a long time in makeup. But did they have to do a head cast and everything? Um, I, yeah, I think that they, I can't remember exactly. I just remember the, yeah, they had a, you know, I had to have a bald cap on and then build up the forehead and put those lumps on and everything and my hairline had to go back. I think I even had like a wig attached as well. So it, yeah, it was, a, it was a long involved process, but you know, when you're in the makeup room and you're chatting with the other actors and the people, the makeup artists, it goes by really quickly or you're looking at your lines or running lines with fellow actors who are always so gracious to uh, run lines. But, it, you know, that was a wonderful 
part to play as well. And uh, the whole car scene where we're in, you know, in that old car and having a, a kind of date, it was very sweet. And uh, I think both Bob and I have a, uh, we have a shyness, especially then I think I, I really had an inherent shyness about me and it worked really well for both of us with those characters. And um, I thought it was a really sweet story. I think part of it was about how beauty is from within and don't judge a book by its cover and all that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which is, um, it's funny because it reminds me, I, I did an episode of Seinfeld where I had um, a prosthetic nose attached and it's called The Nose Job and it's, it's in one of the top 100 episodes. But I remember being on set during the weekend, everybody was, you know, just talking and getting along with people. And then the day I had to wear the prosthetic nose, there were people who actually treated me differently, like who didn't who didn't talk to me as much. And I, it was such a fascinating experiment for me because I was like, wow, so this is interesting. And it ties into that same thing of, you know, I had this huge nose like Jimmy Durante and there were people who just weren't as friendly to me. Um, and, uh, you know, but there were plenty of people that were great, like all the Jerry Sons on everybody. They were just terrific. But, you know, there were some people that, <laughs> so odd. So the, the the prosthetic must have been really good close up then. I think so. I mean, when yeah, I mean it, it was it was pretty large during the episode. They have a pretty large close up of it, and you can go and you can like see the pores in my nose. <laughs> so um, yeah, so I guess it looked pretty realistic, and um, and it didn't change the way I looked. So that was that was very interesting. But it ties into that same thing about you know what is beauty and. Mm. I think it does come from the soul, and I think it does come from inside, and I think you should treat everybody, you know, well and kindly and not be treating them differently because of how they look. I agree. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very memorable episode. I love that episode of Seinfeld. Very funny. Uh, have, yeah. you, have you done other parts uh, with uh, makeup? I know you're in an Alien Nation episode. <laughs> that's right. I did an Alien Nation movie and had to have a huge kind of pinhead, and, and that was a great experience as well. And I think I did a... A movie with Victoria Principal. I can't remember the name of it now, but um, I had to have a like a, a head cast. I think I got decapitated in it. I oh my goodness! Like that. So I had to have that thing where you can only breathe through a straw, mm-hmm. and while it's all hardening around you, and that was that was a little um, claustrophobic, I have to say. But other than that, I, off the top of my head, I can't remember any other ones. It's so crazy. The first thing they do, they hire a beautiful woman and then cover her with a whole bunch of makeup. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's show business. <laughs> but, but you know, it's fun to play different characters and to change your looks. Um, and I've always felt that I was a character actor, so um, I enjoy you know transforming myself that way. It's fun for me. Yeah, I definitely had that moment when I was looking up all the parts you did, connecting them all, and I had no idea you were all the same person. <laughs> well, that's good. That yeah. that to me is a good actor. If you're, if you're you can you know. One of my favorite shows when I was uh, growing up, a uh, teenager, was Night Court. Oh. You played uh, John Larroquette's kid sister on there, right? Yes, that was, that was a really fun part to play. Um, I just modeled myself after him, and, you know, I was a real go-getter, like, willing to step on anybody to get ahead. Um, and it was a character very different than how I feel in real life, but it was just, oh, this, that was a really fun character to play. Because there are certainly people that are like that in life, and uh, so that was... Yeah, and it was, he's just a genius to work with. I mean, what a talent he is. So dry and funny and just great timing. Um, so I, I felt really lucky to get to 
get to work with him. It was cool because Brent Spiner was on that show and was on Next Generation after that too. So, did you guys cross paths on Night Court at all? Oh, that's so funny. Um, truthfully, and Brent Spiner, I never worked with him, but I actually oh. dated him very briefly. Really? Because he he and I had a mutual friend, Roy Brocksmith, mm-hmm. who was a very dear friend of mine, and Roy was on um, Star Trek, um, and he was in Arachnophobia and Total Recall, and he set Brent and I up on the date, and. Um, and, and he was terrific. He was such a great person. I just, I wasn't ready to be in, you know, in a serious relationship. He seemed like such a grown-up. And I was just like, <laughs> oh, I was scared. And so, yeah, it didn't work out. But what a what a wonderful man and, and so talented. He seems like a great guy. He's funny. When I met him, he uh, played a little joke on me that he could mentally figure out my name. And he said, ah. your name's Al or Albert, right? And I was like, yeah, how did you know? That's amazing, right? And I was like, of course, I was starstruck the first time I met him. And uh, it wasn't until like a half hour later, I realized I was wearing a convention badge with my name on the front of my shirt. <laughs> he is extremely bright, though. I mean, he's one of those people that's just super intelligent. Very cool. I never knew that. That's awesome. I know. <laughs> I read in your bio that you had actually worked on Broadway with another Quantum Leap guest star, John Cullum. Oh, yes. That was wonderful. Um, yeah, it was, I was very young, and Uta Hagen played my mother, the acting teacher extraordinaire, and it, it, she was wonderful. And Victor Garber was in it as well, and I had a huge crush on him because he was just a wonderful actor and wonderful man. And, yeah, and John Cullum, who is just a dear... Um, uh, I mean, I loved him on Northern Exposure, and I had no idea until I worked with him how much of a Broadway talent he was, too. And his son, J.D. Cohn, was in it as well, which was, I think, a treat for them to both be in the same play. And J.D. played my brother. So it was, that was a really <laughs> extraordinary experience, getting to be on Broadway with all those wonderful actors. More recently, uh, you've done episodes of Murder in the First. Yes, yes. I did an episode last year, and then they brought my character back. And I just shot that about a week ago. And my character, when any police officer is in trouble or has been murdered, they have to come before our board. And so we're the two kind of stern people that they have to, you know, kind of, we have to interview them to find, get to the bottom of what really happened. And so, yeah, Tay Diggs was the person I worked with in the most recent episode. And, well, he's just terrific. What a great talent and just such a giving actor and so subtle and I you know I was really I was watching him when the camera was on him and I think wow he's so it's okay you can see his mind working in the thoughts of the character and um yeah he was really really just such a gentleman really great person to work with he's he's very charismatic he's the kind of guy when he's on screen that's all you're looking at oh yeah yeah when he's like that in real life and he's always we were making jokes and um we were, you know, we would be laughing right before the camera started rolling, and then he just immediately, you know, would just be very professional and get right into the character like that, and it's very impressive. But just, he was very gracious on the set with everyone, and friendly, and asking questions, you know, wanting to get to know about people's lives and things like that. He, you know, there are all kinds of actors. Sometimes they have to just be in their own space, which I respect, and, you know, they have to, they don't want to talk to anybody, but he was just, you know, very outgoing and, and um, running lines, if you wanted to run lines, and he's just great. Yeah, that was, that's a, I hope they, they bring my character back. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, not, so that, yeah, because that was a great experience. Can you tell me about the movie Basement? Sure. Um, that's an independent feature 
It's directed by a young director named Corey Howard, and um, it's a dark story about a, about a young man who we're not sure what's going on with him. He has a, had a, a past of being mistreated and abused, and I play his mother in denial about what he went through as a child. And so he's keeping something in the basement, <laughs> or someone. <laughs> Um, and, uh, um, my character is suspicious and concerned and afraid and, um, that it was a really interesting script and we shot it in a very short period of time. And so I'll be curious to see how it turns out, but it was a great experience. Um, very, you know, once again, very great collaborators in terms of the producers and the director and everybody involved and all the actors. Um, Brian McClure, I think, was the star actor, and he's done some, he's been doing some um, sci-fi stuff recently, and uh, he's a terrific actor and uh, great to work with, and um, so it was a lot of fun. We'll see how it turns out. Yeah, it's hard to say it was fun, but when you're playing, <laughs> when it's a scary, disturbing movie, but it actually was. It was, from a psychological point of view, it's very interesting, challenging to... Uh, get to play that type of a character. Um, so I enjoyed it a lot, yeah. Is this right? You have your own production company? I do. It's called um, Zen Green Films, and um, I've written and directed and shot about four short films. Some of them are still in a post-production, you know, perfectionism, I call it, mm-hmm. trying to get it right. Um, and then my daughter, um, who's in high school, is has written a, a, a terrific script that she's directing because she wants to go to film school and become a filmmaker. And so we're going to be shooting that next week, and I'm producing it and helping her. And her name is Juliet Cassidy. And uh, she's a terrific young writer, and I'm very impressed with her. Um, so that's that's been a great experience. Just uh, And I produced, uh, I've produced helped to produce other short films, and uh, I, I also really enjoy doing that, helping people to, you know, realize their vision. And I've, I have two feature scripts I'm writing, and then I'm working on a, a pilot, TV pilot, and a web series. So I have lots of, you know, different things. It's just a matter of completing them and feeling that they're at the place where I can actually submit them or get the financing to make them. I'm also a member of a theater company called the Road Theater Company in North Hollywood, and we have a lot of actors there and um, directors and writers, and so it's a great place to um, kind of test out stuff, you know, test out your writing and get feedback. Um, so that's great to have that support group in terms of writing. Do you have a favorite part of the business? Um, I would say, I mean, I, you know, I love acting. It's my first love. And um, being able to step into someone else's shoes and play a wide variety of um, occupations and um, characters, it's, it's always fascinating to me and really a, a joy of mine. But I also love writing and um, I love directing, but I feel more like, I, I, I haven't had as much experience with it. And I really do love being on the set as well and just being there to support um, other people while they're getting their vision made and realized. So I have to say I love doing all aspects of it. I just don't feel that I'm as, um, I haven't had as much experience as I have had at acting, but um, I really do enjoy writing and directing as well and producing. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. Going back a little bit and a connection a little bit, uh, you were on NCIS. And uh, yeah. now that Scott Bakula is on the newest incarnation of NCIS, is, is there any chance you might uh, get a guest starring role on that, you think, one day? You know, I would love that. Can you just say that to Don Belisario? <laughs> you talked to him. Un- unfortunately, I talked to him a couple hours ago. So. Oh, no. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know. I, I would love to. I, I, I saw. I mean, I watched a couple of episodes of that, um, and I also um, I know Lucas Black because he appeared on a show of my ex husband's American Gothic, um, which was a terrific show. And um, so I, I knew him when he was younger, and I'm so thrilled to see those two working together. But yeah, I would love to. I would love to be a guest star on that show. Um, yeah, Dean was already on yeah. it, so that would be nice if there was a little reunion. Oh yeah, that would be great. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. You were such a big part of Quantum Leap. I don't think we could have done the episode on MIA without this, so I really appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome, and I, I'm, I'm glad you guys are doing that. Cause it's, I think it deserves to be seen again, the whole series. I just I feel like it's a wonderful show. And it, it's so unique. I mean, there, just, there aren't a lot of shows like that where you could, can go to all these different time periods, and you know, I just feel like it's really special. Back in 1999, an idea popped into my head. What if I could fly? How would I deal with it? How would it change my life? Then another idea hit me. What if I was only the first? What if the entire human race could do it too? For six long years, I dreamed of all the amazing ways life would be affected if humanity could suddenly defy gravity. On October 10th, 2005, I decided I wanted to see that flying world. So, I created it. Nine years in the making, Bizarre New World is now entirely complete and ready for printing. For the casual reader, the main 278-page story is all you need. This special Kickstarter exclusive edition features a Tony Parker cover, and it's only available during this limited campaign. For those wanting to explore more of the flying life, you'll also want to check out the 28 additional short stories in the Bizarre New World Anthology. This 225-page collection features the talents of 50 creators from across the globe, including Rick Leonardi, Trad Moore, Alan Jefferson, and many others. This short story collection is only being offered as a digital PDF, but if we can reach our $25,000 stretch goal, we'll unlock the ability to buy this gorgeous volume in print. Try some of the book out for free right now before you become a backer. Simply go to BizarreNewWorld.com for a 22-page preview of the core Paul Crutcher story, and see for yourself why critics gave so much love to the book. While you're there, check out free anthology stories too. During this Kickstarter campaign, we're releasing 12 of the anthology stories online for free across 12 participating websites, including Crave Online, Bleeding Cool, Geeks of Doom, Ohio's Plain Dealer newspaper website, even Steve Eunice's Superman homepage. Just keep checking back to BizarreNewWorld.com beginning April 29th to learn when a new website link will unlock a never-before-released Bizarre New World short story. To make this Kickstarter event even more special, we'll be adding unique reward tiers throughout the campaign, featuring first-come, first-served rarities, like original art by Christopher Provence, Tone Rodriguez, 
Megan Levins, and other specialty items. For the serious enthusiast, we're also offering this limited edition omnibus hardcover, the entire 503-page Bizarre New World opus in one stunning volume. It's being printed in very limited supply. This epic nine-year project is finished. Now all we need is your help to get it printed. For anyone who's ever wondered what it might be like to actually fly, Fractured Entertainment presents Bizarre New World. This is Scott Bakula, and you're listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Wow, I loved talking to her. Yeah, that was a great interview. It's great that she gets just as emotional as all of us when she's watching that episode. And that was the non-spoilery version. So if you want to listen to the more in-depth interview I did with her, the complete interview is available at quantumleappodcast.com in our interview section. And she talks a lot about the whole series overall. One of my favorite parts is finding out that she actually dated Brent Spiner. That's pretty cool. I love Brent Spiner. Yeah, it's pretty cool. As you may have heard, we have some exciting news on the interview section of our show for next time. For The Leap Home Part 1, our interview is with Dr. Sam Beckett himself, Scott Bakula. The Scott Bakula. Scott Bakula. You talked to Scott Bakula. Guess who talked to Scott Bakula? That's awesome. I talked to Scott Bakula. <laughs> that was the whole reason for starting this podcast. To talk to Scott Bakula. You probably could have just gotten... Probably would have been cheaper call. and quicker if I just flew somewhere... <laughs> And stood outside of a hotel or went to a convention. Probably would have gotten arrested for stalking or Maybe. something. Great guy. Great interview. We talk a lot about Quantum Leap as a whole and also about the Leap Home. I'm excited to listen to the smaller version of that episode. <laughs> yes, the uh, spoiler-free version. We're going to have Sam Beckett on our show. That's uh, something big to look forward to at the beginning of Season 3 for the Quantum Leap Podcast. Now everybody's going to be like, Really? better hurry up and get that episode out. For people that are marathoning the show, they just stopped this program right here and went <laughs> and to the next one. Yeah. They're like, okay, we don't need to hear the rest of this. I can't blame them, but they'll yeah. be back. And oh, here they're, they're back. <laughs> Wasn't that an awesome interview? <laughs> A lot of thanks to J.D. Schwartz for that, setting that up for us. Yeah. Thanks, J.D. And of course, immediately following this episode is the Donald P. Belisario interview. It's a great time to be a Quantum Leap fan. <laughs> also coming up in the Leap Home Part 2, we have an interview with David Newsom, who played Tom. Cool. You don't know who that is yet? I don't know who that is yet. Not only do we have David Newsom, but we have Andrea Thompson. She played the reporter. People are starting to worry it's going to be four hours now. It's a good four hours. <laughs> and now it's time for Part 4 of Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream. And the part of Carmen is played by our special guest star, Jennifer Runyon. I love her. Great job, Amber. Now get that hard drive and get out of here. Sounds like a plan. Here's the computer. Let's see. Press any key. It wants a password. What a surprise. Look, we don't have time for this. Forget trying to wake up the machine. Just unplug the USB drive. That's all you need. Okay, I'm on it. Done. This isn't the bathroom. I know. I'm sorry. I got lost. No, you didn't. You were snooping. Yes, you're right. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist it. I just love looking around other people's homes. 
Look, I'll just go. I'll be on my way. Sorry to have troubled you. What did you just put in your bag? What? Nothing. Show me. Amber, you're going to have to run for it. I don't want to. Show me. You have the element of surprise. Why? Because you're 26 years older than he thinks you are. He's still seeing you as a 15-year-old. I'm not going to ask again. I'm going to kill you. He's got a knife. No! What if you could leap into the past, still facing mirror images that were not your own, still driven by an unknown force to change history for the better, and still guided by a hologram that only you could see and hear? But now you are also able to leap home. We've solved the problem. We live the impossible dream. Don't worry. We'll sort this out. This is the police. Open the door. I pack quite a punch for a 15-year-old, don't I? Yes, you do. Don't worry. I won't make that mistake twice. I've still got a knife. Amber, the police are outside, and there's an open window. All you have to do is yell. Help! Please help! He's got a knife! You shouldn't have done that. Help! Open the door now! We're coming in! Stand away from the door! Armed police, put the knife down. Shelly Cartwright, are you okay? I am now. What were you doing here? Take this hard drive. It's why he was attacking me. That's better. Now, hands above your head. Turn around. Why? What's on it? Evidence. He's been blackmailing girls. I think I'm getting the picture here. Don't worry. It's all going to be okay now. Amber, you did it. History is changing. Thanks to the evidence on that hard drive, the police get a warrant to search the computer, and Gary goes down for a long time. Carmen doesn't start a life of crime, and now she goes on to be a great novelist. It's going to be okay now. Looks like that's it. Mission's just about over. Amber will be coming home soon. So that's how it works. One tiny change, and the job's done. Not that tiny. A criminal is behind bars, and a young girl's life has been changed for the better. It's impressive. I'll give you that. But it's still not... Wait. Something's happening. What's happening? Tell me. I can feel history changing around me. Is that normal? No, that doesn't usually happen. My niece... You remember, I told you, she died. You said she committed suicide. I still remember that. But now, I remember a different history, too. 
Is she alive? In the revised history, the incident which led to her original suicide did not take place. She did not commit suicide. Jeanette Taylor is alive and well, and living in Missouri. But how? In the original history, Jeanette Taylor was blackmailed by Gary McFarlane. In the revised history, Gary McFarlane is behind bars. Then this project, Amber, saved her life. And her past. Carmen, that was amazing. How did you know to call the police? I followed you. I saw you go into that creep's house, and somehow I knew what you were up to. How did you know where to go, anyway? Some friends helped me find out. I couldn't have done it by myself. Well, suddenly the future looks a whole lot brighter. Maybe one day you'll become a great novelist. And if that ever happens, you can turn this into a story. You'd have to change the names, obviously. Obviously. And, um, what should I call you, Shelley? Sam. Amber, welcome home. That was fantastic. Can I go again? Another time. Amber, I want to thank you. There's no need. This is what we do. Nonetheless, I thank you. Brian? Yes? You have your funding. For as long as I'm CEO of Stockwell Industries, we will fund you. On behalf of Project Quantum Leap, I thank you. I have to go now. There's someone I need to see. Goodbye, Mr. Taylor. Well, goodbye, and good luck. Well, that went well. Better than you know. You saved at least one life. Maybe more. Jeanette, is that you? Shelly, the real Shelly, did okay. She probably won't remember her time here, but I kept her briefed on what you were up to, Amber, so hopefully it won't be too jarring for her when she returns. That's good. Project Quantum Leap has a future. I think we should celebrate. Drinks at the bar. I'm up for that. Give me time to change out of this suit. Then I'm in. Me too. Count me in. Oh, boy. Quantum Leap The Impossible Dream was created and written by Jill Arroway, starring Tawny Finneran as Amber Lee and Juan Morrow as Ryan Lee, with special guest appearance by Jennifer Runyon as Carmen Cartwright. Also starring Hayden McQueenie as Peter Taylor, Suzanne Smiley as Barbie Sutton, Peter Vonisak as Dr. Lawrence McKenzie, Albert Mark Burge as Gary McFarlane, Kelly Huff Stutler as female police officer, Mac Jackson as male police officer, and Siri as Ziggy 2.0. Episode 1, Need You Now, was edited, cast, produced, and directed by Albert Mark Burge. Narration by Suzanne Smiley. Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream, is produced in association with the Quantum Leap Podcast and is a Barron Space production. So what did you think of how it ended? It was good. It was cool to see the story arc, and it's cool that Jennifer Runyon's on the show. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I liked the ending. I'm glad that everything worked out.
Yeah, I think uh, for our first outing, audio drama-wise, it, it, it turned out pretty good. Yeah. And we just might have some more in the future. Awesome. We have a very special segment from one of our crew members, Suzanne Smiley. She has a great article on the music and music replacement in Quantum Leap. Oh, I've been looking forward to this one. Ah, uh, M.I.A. Who can forget that iconic scene with Al and his first wife, Beth, dancing along to their song, Georgia On My Mind by Ray Charles. Georgia. Georgia. Look at me, Beth. The whole day through. Oh, Sam, why did you make me do this? Just an old sweet song. Keeps Georgia on my mind. Now imagine if instead they were dancing to this. That's what you hear when you're watching Season 2 of Quantum Leap in the U.S. or Canada. And it's just one example of many throughout the series where the original intended music was replaced with a cheaper, glaring substitution. The casual fan may not even notice, and the rest of the world doesn't even know how good they have it. In June 2004, when it was announced that Quantum Leap would be released on the DVD, the fans rejoiced. Season 1 came out to great reception. It even had some special features and hidden Easter eggs. Most importantly, it was complete, exactly as it originally aired back in 1989, along with all of its original music. Six months later, when Season 2 was set to release, whispers began to erupt amongst the fan community that the season was not complete. Many of the classic oldies that made the show memorable were being replaced. Why? It all comes down to music rights. Every time you hear a pop song in Quantum Leap, whether it be as background music, on the radio, or performed by one of the actors, Universal had to pay to have that song cleared for use. Licensing fees are paid in two separate ways. The first fee is paid to the songwriter, and it goes to the publishing company that controls the rights to those songs. The second fee is paid to use the actual recording, and it goes to a recording company. Back when Quantum Leap first aired, the idea of releasing a complete television series onto video was unheard of. VHS was expensive, and with 22 to 24 episodes per season, that resulted in a lot of tapes. With the advent of DVDs and Blu-ray, which were cheaper to produce and held more data, the release of television shows on video became the norm. With modern shows today, most music licensing negotiations include all possible uses of the song right from the start. Things like initial broadcast, reruns, syndication, DVDs, international, and online streaming. Quantum Leap was originally cleared for broadcast use and maybe a handful of songs from a selection of episodes that made it to VHS. But DVD and online streaming were things that the creators of shows back in the 90s and earlier couldn't even imagine and therefore was never put into clearance contracts. 
That meant that if Universal wanted to release complete seasons of Quantum Leap on the DVD, all of those classic oldies would have to be cleared once again. One song at a time. For the right to play the song, and for permission from the songwriter. This can be a very costly venture, one that Universal wasn't willing to go out of its way to achieve. Obtaining music rights for every song in Quantum Leap would have cost Universal upwards of a million dollars. That would have driven up the cost of the DVDs, and Universal just didn't think the fans would pay it. This is why some songs in the series have stayed intact, while others have been replaced with filler. I remember going onto the message boards on Al's Place back in 2004 and reading the fans complaining about the music replacements. For me, the biggest injustice was what was done to Good Morning Peoria. I mean, how can you have an episode where Sam's a 50s radio DJ and replace half the music? The general consensus seemed to be that we would gladly pay more to have our favorite show complete. But the question remains, are there enough hardcore fans willing to pay to make it profitable to Universal? People in Europe were saying that their Region 2 DVDs were fine, with all the music intact. And as a bonus, their DVDs were single-sided, a wonderful alternative to the double-sided American Region 1 DVDs, which were prone to manufacturing defects like disc rot, a separating of the plastic layers. There was never a question in my mind which version to choose. I bought Season 2 and 3 of Quantum Leap from the UK just to have the most complete and highest quality set possible. So why was the music replaced in the U.S. and not in Europe? In Europe, the copyright laws work a little differently. Rather than negotiating clearances on a song-by-song basis, in Europe, Universal can divide up a certain percentage of the profits of every DVD set sold among the various artists who have songs in the show. It works similarly to the royalties that songwriters get for each CD that's sold. Wondering why the U.S. doesn't adapt similar copyright laws? Quite frankly, It's because there's just too much money for publishers and recording labels in the current system where they can negotiate and set their own prices per song. In March of 2006, when Season 4 of Quantum Leap came out, the music was suddenly replaced for both the U.S. and the U.K. Why? What had changed? Surely not the U.K. copyright laws. My best guess is that Universal was losing money on the U.S. sales and decided to make Season 4 the same for all regions. But all it wound up doing was getting the UK fans onto the same angry bandwagon that the US fans had been on for the past two years. Then, when the fifth and final season was released in November of that year, all of the music was intact in all regions. This is probably mainly due to season five not being as musically intensive as previous seasons, especially seasons two and three. The US version even had a few extra features that the UK discs did not. Perhaps an attempt from Universal to try to make it up to us? So some of you might be asking yourself, who cares? The great acting, themes, and storytelling are all still there. So what if they replaced a few songs? Quantum Leap is one of those few television shows that has the unique opportunity to illustrate the past through music. And in a show about time travel, the music is just as essential to defining the time period as the costumes and props are. The songs make the past feel more real. Instantly recognizable tunes transport us, along with Sam, into the past, and easily tell us whether a leap takes place in the 50s or the 70s. In addition, the songs help set the mood for many scenes. The people behind telling these stories did not choose these songs at random. The music was selected for very specific reasons, and sometimes almost became a character unto itself. Think of Al, roaming around the home he once shared with Beth, along to an instrumental version of This Guy's In Love With You. 
The song paints such an emotional picture, even without the lyrics. And other songs cut from this episode. Someday we'll be together, as Sam looks at the photo of Beth's husband and realizes it's Al. Unchained Melody, as Al and Beth are sitting alone in their living room together, with 25 years separating them. Those are two more songs that speak to the love between Al and Beth and create a mood that no amount of artificially inserted music ever will. Even sitting on the dock of the bay has its own place in this episode for its maritime setting. Okay, so now that you know what you're missing, you might be wondering where you can go if you want to hear Quantum Leap as it was intended. Unfortunately, Season 4 is still not complete, no matter what region you have. But you can purchase Seasons 2 and 3 online from UK sources. I'd try eBay. Look for Region 2 or 4 DVDs. In order to play them on your computer, all you need is to download a free multi-region program like VLC Media Player. Or, if you'd rather watch them on your big screen TV, you can check if your DVD player can be made region-free. Many models, like Philips, are easily converted with just a touch of a few buttons on your remote. Links to these resources and more can be found on the Quantum Leap Podcast website. If you need help, just ask. You can also watch select episodes on the streaming version of Netflix, which has all the original music, but only about 75% of the episodes. I guess the other 25% were just too expensive to clear, even for streaming. Other streaming services, like Hulu, have the music replaced, but have 99% of the episodes. In fact, if you're wondering which episode neither online streaming service has, it's Disco Inferno. The only place to hear that episode intact is on the UK Season 2 set. Last year, Universal released the entire Quantum Leap series in the U.S. as a DVD box set. The box was streamlined and the episodes were burned onto single-sided, higher-quality discs. However, the content remained the same. It is unknown if the series will ever get a Blu-ray release. But I, for one, will not buy the U.S. version until it's made as complete or more complete than the U.K. release. And I don't care how much I have to pay for it. As a true Quantum Leap fan... It would all be worth it. I'm Suzanne Smiley for the Quantum Leap Podcast. Thank you so much, Suzanne. I call her Smiley. Yeah, it's her last name. You can find the links from her article in our show notes page and on a special page specifically for this article. Oh, cool. I think it's time for feedback. Feedback, feedback. These emails will be read by Juan. This is from Matthew Vandiver. Sam Beckett, superhero? I've been a huge fan of the television series Quantum Leap for many years and recently have gotten into the comic books, which leads me to the following question. Is Sam Beckett a superhero? Actually, I think that he is. Does he have an actual power? Well, one could technically say he has the power of time travel, but... Like all great superheroes, it's not the actual power that makes him great. However, in the interest of keeping to the nature of this article, here are a few of the more comic booky traits he shares with other great superheroes. He has a secret identity. In fact, he may have the ultimate secret identity since there's no real way his identity can be discovered unless he reveals the information himself. He has a brilliant mind with which he can outthink the villains or otherwise utilize to help him get through a leap. He is also a highly skilled fighter and martial artist, which allows him to supplement his thinking skills with his fighting ability when necessary. Sam also has some of the typical assets of a superhero. There's Al, his best friend and sidekick, without whom he would be lost. 
Furthermore, even though Sam does not, you can always find Al wearing a colorful costume, although he has yet to wear anything with a cape. Like many superhero sidekicks, Al is also a highly trained individual, mainly due to his colorful youth and military service. Aside from Al, Sam also has a supercomputer, Ziggy, at his service, although Ziggy probably does not see it the same way. Just imagine if Batman had a temperamental Batcomputer that suffered from mood swings and personality shifts and maybe even gender dysphoria. Sam Beckett also has the tragic backstory of a superhero with the premature deaths of his father, John, and his brother, Tom. Just like other superheroes that experience the deaths of loved ones, their loss has spurred him onward to do good things with his life. Which brings us to the qualities that Sam shares with the best superheroes. Sam Beckett is a selfless person, always putting the needs of others before his own. He is a good-natured person and a lover of people. He believes in their goodness above all else and will do whatever he must to ensure a better quality of life for everyone he meets. Sam is also a great believer in equality, justice, and mercy. He believes in the importance of family and the solidarity of friendship. In lieu of his own family and friends, he will make sure that bonds between his adopted family and friends, however limited this time with them might be, are strengthened when they are weak or if they are already strong, he will ensure that they will remain strong long after he has departed. And finally, although Sam relies on Alan Ziggy to provide him with the most likely reasons for which he has leaped into someone's life, in the end, he follows his heart and trusts it to tell him what is right and what needs to be done. That is Sam Beckett. That is how he will always be, and that is why he is a superhero to me. Matthew Vandiver. Do you think Sam Beckett's a superhero? I like that idea. I think he is, in every sense of the word. I mean, he has a power, and his power is leaping around in time and being where he needs to be to put right what once went wrong. Yeah, he's saving everybody. Well, saving the ones he can. As much as he can. Yeah. So I I would say, yeah. And you don't need to wear a cape to be a superhero. No, I like that idea. Who's your favorite superhero? Would it be bad if I said, like, the Incredibles? <laughs> no, not at all. You're, you're a Disney kid, so. I'm so a Disney kid. Mr. Incredible. I don't know if I would say Mr. Incredible is my favorite. Maybe his wife. She's very pretty. Yeah, she's pretty cool. I like Frozone. He's cool. Ha, ha, ha. I always like seeing him at Disney World. Yeah. And this one's from Aaron Brotherhead Moss. This is a first for me, writing in for an episode before the episode. Hopefully you get it before you record. I'm assuming it's going to be a great episode as usual, so good job, Albie and Heather. A few notes about MIA. Don't let Heather read this until after she's seen the episode. This is one of my favorite episodes of the show, as I'm sure it's a lot of people's. Followed by a couple of my other favorites, as I've said, I also like the personal leaps. If you're paying attention, you might be able to tell early on that Beth is Al's wife. When Al is first telling Sam about Beth being depressed and that she lost a patient that day, if you noticed, he never looks at the hand link while relating the story. You can tell that Al knows this story by heart for a reason. You can tell that this is very personal for Al whenever he talks about Beth and her leaving her husband. And then Sam gets the punch to the gut when he sees the picture of Beth's missing husband. Also, Al doesn't look as if he's getting much rest during this leap. I like how at the end, Al got a last chance to dance with Beth, and it's almost as if she knew he was there. Then when we saw Al leap out instead of Sam, fantastic. And then they didn't show a next week's scene, which considering the episode coming up is very fitting. Then for the end credits, they kept playing Georgia. Wonderful. A very emotional episode. Great story and great acting all around. You have to feel sorry for both Al and Beth at the end. 
Anyways, I need to get going to work on my own podcast. Just had a few minutes and I wanted to drop you crazy kids a line. Talk to you next time on the Quantum Leap Podcast. Aaron, Brotherhead, Moss. I know music is a big topic in this episode and we all seem to feel passionately about it. Thank you, Aaron. It's always great to hear from you. This is from Leslie. Dear Albie and Heather, as an avid fan of Quantum Leap, I don't know why it took me so long to find you, but I wanted to thank you for creating this podcast. Because I own all five seasons on DVD and was lucky enough to experience the show when it originally aired, it's extremely difficult for me to write about my feelings without giving anything away. What I can say without a second's hesitation is that, without the incredible performances of Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell, Quantum Leap would never have attained the worldwide recognition that it still has 22 years after the final episode aired. In fact, they became as close to each other in real life as the characters of Sam and Al were. Too often, it's revealed that the stars on shows we all know and love actually hated each other off camera. But from the very start, you could see it was not so with these two amazing actors. To this day, it brings tears to my eyes when someone asked Dean, at a Comic-Con for example, out of everyone he's ever worked with, and if you haven't seen his early work, I strongly suggest you check out his phenomenal resume, who his favorite actor is, and he always praises Scott above just about everybody. Except maybe Dennis Hopper. Rest in peace. It's a TV friendship that I equate to the Kirk-Spock-McCoy relationship. On a side note, I'd just like to add that though William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy had their off-screen quarrels over the decades, I believe they truly were like brothers, and that Bill was being sincere when he expressed extreme guilt and sorrow over not being able to attend Leonard's funeral. Creator Don Belisario definitely has a talent for casting people who bring so much more to a series than even he knew was possible. Scott's beautiful singing voice, piano, and guitar playing, though he admitted that someone else played every time Sam picked up an electric guitar, theatrical performances in Broadway, smash hits like Romance, Romance, and Man of La Mancha, and all-around athleticism prepared him perfectly for the part of Sam. Dean's cigar-smoking, concern for the environment, and penchant for improve were as integral to Al's character as the traits Scott brought to the role of Sam. I better cut myself short before I write a term paper. Wait, that was short? Again, I'd like to thank you for the podcast and for putting up with my rambling. Once I start talking about something I feel this passionate about, it's very hard for me to stop. Your friend in time, Leslie. I'm the same way. No. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great email. Um, And Leslie, anytime you want to write us an email, especially... Or a term paper. Or a term paper. If you want to start writing ones for the episodes that you feel strongly about, we are totally game for that. Yes, you're part of the community, so you're just as welcome here as everyone else. I have to say, just on that note, it's crazy. I tell people that ask me what it's like to have a podcast, because I work with a lot of people who listen to podcasts, but they don't have any of their own. It's crazy because we've met so many people and like we have this group of friends that we have now that we wouldn't have had without this podcast. And we've gotten to know a lot of our frequent feedbackers. And I think we're actually pretty close with all of them now. We didn't start out that way, but we've met so many great people along this journey. And we're pretty open to anybody helping out. If you ever want to volunteer, if you want to write us an article, if you want to record reading an article if you want if you want to help out in anything we're totally open to that there's no really set requirement other than we don't pay (laughs) um (laughs) um, if we could we totally would but we don't get paid either so um (laughs) 
it's like this great passionate project that we've all kind of come together on. And it's really great that we have established such like a, a great little podcast community that we have. And I know that we have people on our Facebook group that interact a lot, but we have a lot of people that we've met that personally, you know, reach out to us and interact with us all the time. And it's just, it's such a really cool thing that we've created. And it kind of blows my mind when I think about it. The grand scheme of things, like we're, we're doing something pretty cool. And having people write in emails like that, like we want to hear you ramble. We want to hear your thoughts on the episode and hearing other people's opinions can totally change the way you look at an episode. I know that even just me and Albie, like he'll watch an episode one way seven times. And as soon as he hears my opinion on it, he's like, oh, I didn't even think about it that way. So you can watch an episode of TV the same way over and over. And then you hear someone else's opinion and you can see an episode in a completely different light. So we love to hear your feedback. We love to hear it, even if it's not read on the show, even if you don't want it read on the show, if you just want to like talk to us. That's super cool. We love this whole podcasting community that we have. It's like we like created a big family and it's awesome. And here's another one from Leslie. Hello, Albie and Heather. The Sam slash Al dynamic is matched only by Al's relationship with Teresa. If you didn't know this already, Dean Stockwell is a father, as is Scott Bakula. Both Scott's and Dean's children were very young when Quantum Leap originally aired, so it was easy for Dean to showcase his softer parental side regarding this incredibly sweet little girl played by Troyan Belisario. Perhaps the fact that Al's sister was named Trudy, which is short for Teresa, had something to do with it as well. I teared up when I listened to the audio clip in which Deborah Pratt spoke about Dean's warning to her because... Knowing as much about his early career as I do, it was clear to me that he was speaking from very personal and somewhat painful experience. Thank you for continuing with this podcast and for helping me with my technical issues. Yes, that's me on Twitter. I'm a huge Axl Rose fan, which is why he is my avatar. Plus, we're both misunderstood gingers. For the record, please allow me to reiterate, since it was brought up during this episode, that Scott Bakula and Dean Stockwell are indeed as close as their characters. It was a thrill to see them reunite in Star Trek Enterprise and more recently in NCIS New Orleans. And even though the two didn't work together in Men of a Certain Age, another show which was canceled too soon, I'm still convinced that Scott based his portrayal of Terry on Al. I also got a major kick out of the fact that Ray Romano's character Joe had a son named Albert and the writers even managed to get an oh boy out of Scott before the show came to an end. It's another series I highly recommend you check out if you haven't already done so. Well, that's enough for now from this Leaper. Until we meet again in the future, your friend in time, Leslie. I don't think I've seen Men of a Certain Age. I, you've watched it, right? Yeah, I've watched a few episodes. It's pretty good. I just haven't gotten into it yet. I always wanted to watch that show because I liked Ray Romano and I, and I liked the cast, but I don't know why I'd, I didn't watch it, but it's definitely on my list of things to watch. As I'm getting closer to a certain age, I might have to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> the age you're in denial about. <laughs> Big Axl Rose fan, too. That's awesome. Yeah, I like Guns N' Roses. Uh, Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. I stood in line all night to get the uh, two CDs at once. Was I alive then? No. Back then, they had things called compact discs. They were really cool. I had cassettes and compact discs when I was younger. Now you just wish for it, and it appears, as long as your uh, password matches. (laughs) And this is another one from Matthew Vandiver. This is from our Facebook feedback. Man, that Seabride Quantum Leap podcast episode was massive. I never really gave any thought to the part in Seabride where Al mentions his one true love. Made me want to watch the next episode immediately. So I think he liked it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it was a little lengthy. <laughs> the first cut came in at four hours and 30 minutes. And I got it down to three hours, 59 minutes and 29 seconds. I think you rocked the podcasting world a little bit with that. People are a little freaked out. Yeah. If it gets to the four hour mark, people are like, no, I don't have four hours in the next four weeks. I'm sorry. I know your theory of pausing. See, I never had four. Well, I guess I did on the days I would work at 1.30 in the morning. But the days I would have two hours, my only thought is I would start listening to something and then forget to listen to it again. Like forget to pick up. I did that with um with Nerdist a lot. If I was listening to multiple interviews, I would stop when I had to stop listening at work and like I would never go back to it. I don't know why. When I do Nerdist, I do like 15 in a row. I'll pause it where it is and then start back where it was. But I still think we had, we had a ton of content and it was still a great show. As a friend of mine told me, it's super tight. So, you know, there's not a lot of wasted space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even think we talked about the show as long as we normally do because we had so much content. Because <laughs> we had three great interviews. So you can't cut those too much because those are the stars. You know, people get us every episode. So I cut more of Yeah, us we're out. not more important. We're, we are not as important as they are, for sure. Not at all. And uh, I loved all those interviews and talking to those people. And we did immediately watch MIA after we finished recording Seabride. I didn't know the episode would be so focused on Al and Beth, so I didn't really see that either. I mean, it made sense, and you you kind of hinted towards it. Like, now you know why he is the way he is, so like we talked about it, but I don't know if I would have really noticed it, because he makes comments about women the whole time. I know that's a different comment, but you kind of just start like, yeah, that's just Al being Al or, you know, whatever. If you didn't know, you wouldn't know. And I did mess with you a lot in Seabride about MIA. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't want to lead on about anything. So I think that's good. I was trying to get your opinion without informing you that it was anything important. Right. I think it worked. This one's from Ben Mysek. So, um, Albie, you and Heather should review Star Trek Enterprise after QL. This too has Scott. Really? It has Scott Bakula in it too? Look at you grinning like I just talked to Scott Bakula. I totally did. I think that you put Ben up to that. Uh, you were like, Ben, send in some feedback that says we should talk about Enterprise. I'm totally okay with doing that. I think when we still have three more seasons of Quantum Leap to go, and I don't know, maybe we'll take a little break depending on where we are in three seasons, and then I'm sure we're going to cover another show. I doubt we would just be done with Quantum Leap. I can say this. There wasn't much Enterprise talk when I talked to Scott Bakula, it was mostly about Quantum Leap just because he was filming. So he didn't have all the time in the world to talk to me because I had all the time in the world to talk to him. That's for sure. And I had a whole page of Enterprise questions that I just didn't get to. So maybe we'll have to do Enterprise so you can talk to Scott again. <laughs> you never know. We can put that on the list as a possible maybe. Yeah. Great series. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to have to watch them eventually, right? Right. This next one's from John G. Hertzler. Hey, I know that guy. It's pretty funny that the mini pick of me was somehow gleamed from my campaign for public office up here in upstate New York. They took this in the middle of a Democratic Party meeting, and I was totally pissed off I couldn't even comb my hair. But it is what it is. Looking forward to hearing the podcast. And hello to all. JGH. I did switch out the picture after he posted that on our Facebook because I was like, well, I guess he doesn't like that one. He's a handsome guy, so I just picked one that looked good. That's funny. So I switched it out with another one. I noticed that sometimes people are more critical of themselves than other people. Like you probably didn't see anything wrong with the picture, but he might be like, why? That's my least favorite picture. I'm not that way. No, you're not <laughs> at all. I'm like, look at me. 
Yeah, you are. Look at me. I just woke up. I got bedhead. Yeah. It's 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 good that you're so confident in yourself. Karate plus confidence equals confidence. Remember that. And we have some iTunes reviews. Hey, this one's from Tyler48838. He gave us five stars. Yay. About eight episodes in and loving this podcast, Heather and Albie are great, and I like the interviews with cast members from Quantum Leap. The only nitpicky complaint I have is you guys are a bit monotone. Liven up a little. (laughs) He's kidding, right? Uh, It might be the audio filters I put on. I don't know. He might be kidding. Maybe he's listening to like the serious episodes where we're like, this is a really sad episode. Yeah, he might have just listened to the one about... um, Like death or race or something. Something. You don't want to be happy about the sad things. (laughs) Didn't you see how sad that was? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he was listening to Thou Shalt Not. Maybe, because that was a sad one, especially in the beginning and... I think our sister show on this network said about us, they're the morning zoo and we're NPR. That's not a bad thing. No, I think with that, well, that was a compliment. We're not trying to emulate NPR. Well, playing we're still interesting. Well, if not, we have Scott Bakula. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how many Quantum Leap podcasts can say that? Thank you very much, Tyler. Yeah. By this episode, he's like, okay, you guys are lively <laughs> enough. Simmer down. <laughs> he hasn't gotten to the four-hour show yet either. It's three hours, 59 minutes, and 29 seconds. Okay, buddy. So this one is not a five-star review. Who's it from? How many stars? Gene Hendricks, and it's a three-star review. It says, don't get me wrong, Albie and Heather do a really good job with synopsizing episodes, digging into their meaning, and manage to get some wonderful interviews. However, the further into the episode list I got, the more I heard, well, we think this, and I don't understand how anyone could think different. And you're entitled to your opinion on this. But if you disagree with us, you're wrong. If it wasn't for that, I'd still be listening as I think they did a great job starting out. But the more preachy they got, the less I enjoyed it, even when I agreed with them. So he agreed, but he couldn't understand why. I don't know. Eh, Can't please everybody, right? No, you really can't. And I prefaced that statement. I remember, I don't remember what episode it was, but I remember I was talking about how Gabe used that joke in thinking outside the long box and I just laughed from it. And I guess he didn't get that. What joke? You're entitled to your own opinion, and it's okay, but if you don't agree with me, it's wrong or something. Oh, yeah, you're not really that kind of person. No, but, you know, what we're doing on the Quantum Leap podcast is looking into the different moral lessons we can learn. That's part of it. and I think we agree with Quantum Leap. So if you don't agree with Quantum Leap, then you probably aren't listening to the show. Basically, if something's wrong, I'm going to say it's wrong. And if Quantum Leap's trying to teach us that something's wrong, we have to talk about that it's wrong. Well, I think that... With a show like Quantum Leap, it's about moral lessons in every episode. And, Pre- and I think much, yeah. we agree with the message of Quantum Leap. So I hope we're not being preachy because that's not really how we're trying to come across. But the show is trying to teach people right and wrong. So we're just kind of still talking about that. To me, Quantum Leap is trying to teach people in the moral lesson episodes a moral lesson without being preachy. But what we do is we take a 40-minute show, turn it into a three-hour, 59-minute podcast talking about said show. Yeah. So, of course, we're going to uncover the veil of that moral lesson. So we're going to talk more about that moral lesson. There's a couple things I've avoided talking about still, but I think it's important to talk about those things. And I'm against things that hurt people in any way. I mean, that's right. that's a pretty simple way to say it. If something hurts people, if somebody's opinions or the way they treat people or the way they act towards people hurt people, I'm against it. And I, I don't know if that's wrong. I don't know if that can be wrong. I think we must have somehow rubbed him the wrong way because he even agreed with us and he didn't like it. So 
I don't know. We don't want to offend anyone. We're generally nice people and we have opinions, but they usually go hand in hand with the opinions of the show. So if you think Quantum Leap is morally wrong, then I don't really know if we can help. Yeah. And it's what, <laughs> it's what we do, too. So, yeah, I'm not saying I'm always right. But my basic thought is if something hurts somebody, it's wrong. Now we're getting preachy, buddy. Is that preachy? Calm down. Don't get started. Don't get me started. <laughs> Sorry if we get a little preachy sometimes, but things we feel passionate about. And I guess it's good to feel passionate to stand up for what you believe in. Yeah. I'm going out on a limb. Good things are good. Bad things are bad. Yeah. Well, to finish this off, we have a good iTunes review. Yay. From Tom Quinn. I love him. I know. Okay, so this is a five-star review from Tom Quinn 63. I'm assuming that's the same Tom Quinn that... You never know. If not, (laughs) if we had two Tom Quinns, I love them. (laughs) Okay, so this says, Very enjoyable dissections of the episodes by Albie, a QL veteran, and Heather on her first viewing of the series. Some of the interviews they've scored are amazing. If you're a longtime fan of the show or just starting out with it, this is a great follow-up to each episode. Right, Tom Quinn. Thank you so much. And uh, I really appreciate that. I would have to agree with everything he said. (laughs) And also, uh, I wish him well. He had a little uh, slip on the ice not too long ago. I think he's been rocking his Mr. Fredrickson costume lately. I think he's better and flash. He's a cosplay dad. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Thank you, everybody, for those iTunes reviews. If you have not left an iTunes review for us, please do so. And please leave a five-star review if you think we deserve it. I joked earlier about the reason I did this was to talk to Scott Bakula, but the best thing about doing this is really making friends all around the world that share the same passion for Quantum Leap that I do. Yeah. Every day I talk to people that listen to the show or even help us with the show, and it's it's just great to be able to respond to people that reach out to us and uh, have conversations and develop friendships. It's it's really a great thing. Yeah, we've really made some close friends and and a lot of close friends from this this show, there are many ways that you can send us feedback. You can contact us via email at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can always go to our website, quantumleappodcast.com. And you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. We are on Twitter at quantumleappod. Make sure to connect with us on Instagram because we post a lot of quantum leapy photos and that's Quantum Leap Podcast on Instagram. We have a voicemail line. It's 707-847-6682. And don't be afraid to call because we won't pick it up. It's a computer. We want to hear from you. Also, you can send us MP3s to our email address. Oh, yeah. That's a good idea. So there are many ways. And we are on Patreon. If you don't know what Patreon is, you should check it out. It's patreon.com slash Quantum Leap Podcast. Can you spell Patreon for us, Heather? P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And thank you so much to our patrons, Tom Quinn and Donald Summerlin. They're pretty awesome. They are pretty awesome. They support us wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for being part of the team. Now, it's time for Hayden's segment. If season two is the renaissance period of Quantum Leap, then MIA is the Mona Lisa. It's one of the few episodes, not just of Quantum Leap, but in all of television, which is completely perfect. 
and it's my personal favourite episode of my favourite show. MIA is one of the few episodes, not only of Quantum Leap, but in all of television, where the writing is perfect. It has a gripping story that seemed to add up, but at the same time just felt completely and utterly wrong. It was action-packed, while at the same time pulling on the heartstrings of the viewer and had a great deal of character development for the jewel of Quantum Leap, Al. Al's lost love was very cleverly foreshadowed in the previous episode, Sea Bride. We know that Al will always fight for true love because he has experienced it, knows how fulfilling a life with love is and how devastating it is to lose that true love forever. Al was on a roller coaster of emotions on this leap from the moment he found out the time period and location that Sam had leapt to. He immediately knew what Sam was there to do. It is heartbreaking watching Al losing it as the episode progressed. Not many actors can do what Dean Stockwell did in this episode. So whatever muse gave the Don the inspiration to write this episode, I really hope visits me from time to time as well. It's really quite surprising then that the only person who was not happy about the amazing writing in this episode was Dean Stockwell himself. Dean Stockwell is a method actor, and so in order to portray the emotions he has to portray, he has to actually feel them. And in order to portray the sadness and desperation that he had to in this episode, he had to go to a place that he didn't want to have to go and feel pain that he didn't want to have to feel. But thank goodness Dean Stockwell agreed to do it just this once, because when we get character development from Al, we get a highlight for the entire show and one which makes M.I.A. my favourite episode. You also have to applaud Scott Bakula for his acting as well. You could really tell that Sam was completely confused throughout this leap. Things seemed to add up, and at the same time, they didn't. After all, why would he leap into a cop to save the marriage of a couple that his host had never even met yet? The moment he comes across Al's photograph in Beth's house, the hurt of being let on by his best friend, and lied to by omission, completely sweeps over Scott Bakula's face. Sam's line, Al, if you close that door, don't ever open it again, gives me chills every time, mostly because you can tell that Sam actually means it. The friendship between Sam and Al is the rock of the series, the one thing that can always be relied on. And so it would never have crossed my mind that there was something that could be done by either of them that would be considered unforgivable. Of course, they make up, and Sam totally understands Al wanting to be reunited with his lost love. After all, when Sam was in the same position with Donna, he did everything he could do to do the same thing. It does make Sam seem a bit of a hypocrite, though, and even more so when one looks at what is to come in the very near future. There is something that I just do not like about Dirk. Maybe it is just that we see this episode only from Al's point of view. I'm sure under other circumstances, he'd seem like a perfectly tolerable twit. I suppose he did offer to help Beth when he saw she needed help with the tire. But given his persistent behaviour, trying to manipulate and woo an obviously grieving woman, whose husband is off fighting a war and not even declared dead yet, it makes me think he did help her only because he wanted to ask her out. It also makes me question whether Beth running into Dirk's mother at the regatta and later Beth running into Dirk at the restaurant, were actually accidental? Or was Dirk stalking her? And was his mother in on it? 
I know that it's meant to look like they keep running into each other because that's what God or time or fate or whatever wants. But personally, I don't believe in coincidences. And let's face it, Sam was pretty much stalking Beth throughout this episode too. Dirk was just better at it. This episode brings up any number of what-ifs. If Sam actually had succeeded in saving Al's marriage, then what would happen to the timeline? Would Sam and Al have still met? Just how much input did Al have in bringing the Quantum Leap project to fruition? Would he still build it if Al wasn't there? If Sam doesn't build the project, then how could he go back in time and improve all the lives he has, including saving Al's marriage? Would this cause a paradox? It's said that we are all products of our experiences. Without being abandoned by Beth, Al would actually be a completely different person, not only emotionally, but also because he literally would not have had the same world experiences. There have been many times when Sam was only able to do what he needed to do because he had Al's guidance and something he might not be able to do without all of Al's life experience. Maybe this is why GTFW didn't want Al's marriage to Beth to be saved. Sam's very life and his ability to do his life's work, putting right what once went wrong, could be in jeopardy. In a recent episode of the podcast, Heather pondered whether or not Sam's leaps all have something to do with Al. I actually think that GTFW deliberately leaps Sam into situations where he knows that Al will be able to help him. And that's why it seems like Al has done absolutely everything. Of course it would be like that. God only ever gives us what we can handle. Fans of Quantum Leap will often see references to calla lilies in the series. In So Help Me God, Sadie laments the heat killing all the calla lilies in her garden. In Future Boy, Mo Stein wants nothing more than to go back in time and give his dead wife some calla lilies. And obviously in MIA, Beth's favourite flowers are calla lilies. This is because Deborah Pratt's favourite flowers are calla lilies. I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to Deborah every now and then over Facebook. And she told me that Beth's love of calla lilies was her input into this episode. And also that she was able to keep the flowers that were in Beth's garden. She planted them in her own garden and they're still growing to this day. How awesome is it that she has a continual living memorial of an awesome episode? I also had wondered if the name Calavici had been derived from Calla Lily, but I was told that the name actually came from an old friend of Don Belisario's. The special effects have improved infinitely since the series began. It's now much more difficult to tell when the shots of Al are superimposed over the background to do the hologram effect. It occurred to me in the final scene, where Al says his goodbye to Beth, how hard it must have been to actually film it considering Dean Stockwell and Susan Diol weren't even being filmed at the same time, or were they? And speaking of other things that were awesome in that scene, the music choices for the time period and the situation were brilliant. Unchained Melody in particular really reinforces Al's sadness and his desperation and his need to be with Beth. And then watching them dance to Georgia, I think it brings tears to everybody's eyes, whoever watches it. Possibly the only thing that tarnishes this episode is a throwaway line by Sam. When it is revealed that Al never checked any scenarios except those directly related to himself and Beth, Sam said, maybe there's something else at stake here, something more important. My question is, more important to whom? 
Sam has been leaping around in time long enough now to know that even the smallest positive change has a massive ripple effect. What might not seem important to one person might mean the world to another. I understand that Sam just meant that somebody's life could be on the line, and he was right, but I think his choice of words was a little insensitive. He could have said, what if somebody is in danger, and had Al realised the same thing. But considering the roller coaster of emotions that both Sam and Al were going through at that time, we can excuse a moment of insensitivity. Season 2 established the status quo and set the bar massively high for future seasons, with only a very few number of low moments. We learn a great deal about Sam and Al, and the real gems of this season are when Al reveals something personal about himself, like his sister, his relationship with his surrogate father, Magic, and his lost love. Now, on to season three, with Sam getting his ultimate wish, leaping home, but not how we expected. Dean Stockwell is an amazing person, an amazing actor, as I spoke about at length earlier, because he is just MIA. He is the best actor I've ever seen, ever, in the universe. Wait, he's MIA? He's not missing an action, but (laughs) MIA, it is him. Heather, do you have any news for us? I think there's some news. I think Quantum Leap was on Jeopardy. That was pretty cool. All right. Quantum Leap was on Jeopardy on the same week that podcasting was on the Big Bang Theory. So my mom might have a little idea of what I do, maybe. Maybe. That was a cool episode. It was pretty good. Deborah Pratt has released a new book, and I know that she has been frequently doing book signings. So if you want to check out her upcoming dates, I know she posts them on Facebook. If you want to check out more details on her book, you can obviously get it on Amazon, but there's more information on her website, buymybook.today. And it has, it's a pretty nice website. It's got her book slowly <laughs> scrolling up the screen. <laughs> yeah, uh, Actually, that's me with my shirt off on the book cover. But those are not my wings. You should put like crickets in there for me not responding. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. I've actually started it. And so far, it's really good. It's the kind of book that I actually, I, I read a bunch of different kinds of books but it's definitely one of my favorite genres i I really like romance novels and this is kind of like got a twist sci-fi fantasy kind of thing to it so that's pretty cool so i'm really excited i like the cover i like the cover too but they say don't judge a book by its cover (sighs) i know but i think that the cover is such a big part of it (laughs) so uh we actually heard from beverly leach she wanted to let us know that her friend Jean-Pierre Dorliac who actually worked on Quantum Leap an amazing costume designer right he has a new website so the website is jean-pierredorliac.com so that's j e a n - p i e r r e d o r l e a c.com but we'll have that website in our show notes as well yeah, some nice stuff there. He actually did Battlestar Galactica too, which uh, Don P. Belzario was a part of also. So that's pretty cool. Awesome. Yeah, he's definitely a great costume designer we've seen as we've watched the show. I would wear anything that he designed. 
All the Al outfits have popped into my head. <laughs> <laughs> he is a friend of the show, and uh, he has a book coming up. Awesome. A couple of our friends of the show have made their have made their appearances on TV lately. John D'Aquino was on the latest episode of NCIS. Very cool. It's on the TiVo. Yeah. Got to check it out. And Fabiana Udenio will be on the next episode of Jane the Virgin. Wow. So her story arc starts now. Check your TiVo <laughs> yeah. and see if it's on there. Is there anything else to announce? I think that's it on news. Okay. But we do have some new crew members. Yay. Remember I was just saying how we're awesome and you should come join our podcasting community? Well, we actually have two new crew members. So welcome to the Quantum Leap podcast crew, Mac Jackson, who plays the male cop on Quantum Leap, The Impossible Dream. He is the guy from the Never Gets Old podcast and from the MacGyver podcast. So uh, thank you very much, Mac Jackson, for joining us. He's going to do a lot of the voices in uh, upcoming audio dramas for us. Sweet. Thanks, dude. Welcome aboard. He's a cool guy. We also have, all the way from Germany, Jesse Newman who handles our pre-production, which is such a huge help. And she's actually a writer. And uh, all around uh, helping us out with a lot of different things. Uh, she's going to be doing a little bit of audio editing, too. So welcome. Sweet. Welcome aboard, Jesse. Very big help. Yeah, that's great. And we have spots for tons of different little jobs here and there for anybody who wants to help out. Thank you very much, Mac Jackson and Jesse Newman. It is the end of season two, and it's a great time to ask everybody if they would like to become a volunteer on the Quantum Leap podcast. There is a lot of work that goes into this show, and every little bit helps. So if you think you have a skill that could help us out, let us know. Send us an email at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you can do to help us out. Right now, we're looking for audio editors and a transcriber and an artist. There's a lot of work that goes into making us sound good and look good. <laughs> So uh, if you can help us out, thank you so much. Something that wasn't in your news, Heather, did you uh, know that the Quantum Leap podcast was mentioned and interviewed in the limited special event 10-episode release of the podcast producers? That's pretty cool. Now that show is pretty good, and that was more NPR style than us, I think. Okay, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I, I really liked it. I did about an hour interview, and they put me in most of the 10 episodes. And it was really good, I think. The one that talked about the Quantum Leap podcast the most is the podcasting for business versus hobby episode. You can go check that out at thepodcastproducers.com. It's 10 episodes, and they were all released at once Netflix style. So I listened to them for like two days straight. It's pretty good. See, that wasn't four hours. That was seven and a half hours, but it was broken up into 10 parts. I'll be like the multiple hours of the same content. So if you want to find out a little bit more about the behind the scenes of the Quantum Leap podcast and how other podcasts are made and why they're made, more importantly, check out the podcast producers at thepodcastproducers.com. It's also available on iTunes. So MIA was a great episode, but I didn't really have anything to sing about or hum about in this one. I, I didn't really sing Georgia a lot. But you did wear my clothes all week. Heather, do you have any trivia? I think this is the first and only one of the few episodes that doesn't show Sam leaping at the end of the episode. I think this is the first one, right? So far, we see Al leaping. So does that mean he leaps every time too? Hmm, pretty cool. Yeah. So a little time issue for this episode. Small one. The episode takes place April 1st, 1969. Beth is wearing an MIA bracelet, but those actually didn't 
exist until November 1970. Wow. So a little bit of a timeline error, a little timing error. So in this episode, we find out that Al's last name is Calavici. I guess we knew it was Calavici because of the show, but I guess this is the first time that it's actually been talked about in Quantum Leap. Before MIA, he was always called Al or Admiral, but he's named after a friend of Don Belisario's. I would do that if I was a writer. As we mentioned earlier, Dean Stockwell earned an Emmy nomination for Outstanding Supporting Actor in a Drama Series for this role. He should have won. Yeah, this was definitely an outstanding performance. I can't even like think about it without getting emotional. So we have a couple of guest stars in this episode that went on to play other Quantum Leap roles. Gregory Miller, who plays Pusher, would go on to play Lonnie Harper in the episode Black on White on Fire. That's a good episode. Pat Skipper, who plays Tequila, would go on to play Lucas Marlette in the episode The Beast Within. Hmm, huh, how about that? Very cool. It's cool that they can do that. I mean, I guess you can, because... The Beast Within comes much later, so you wouldn't remember the same actor twice, I don't think. You obviously didn't, so... <laughs> I love when that happens, when you, you have two different separate people in your head, and you find out they're the same people, and then, like, that synapse connects, and you're like, ah, oh, that's so cool. I think there were some continuity errors in the cigarette smoking shot in the beginning where Sam, where we first see Sam. I think the cigarette ash gets longer and shorter and longer and shorter. Probably has to do with the aura. So it's like the aura of the Leapy's cigarette and the actual cigarette that Sam leaped with. I don't know if this counts as a continuity error. In the beginning of the episode when Sam's getting undressed, Al is speaking and he says one sentence, like it's a fluid sentence. And Sam is taking off his necklace, and in one shot it's on, and in one shot it's off. So it's a little, little too quick that maybe he's just a master of taking the necklace off. It was just like really fast. Maybe one of those uh, rip away, just tore it off and threw it down real quick. He's got really, really yeah. adamant on taking that necklace off. That's one of those things you don't notice until you hear about it, and then you, you can't not see it. When Al was talking about Dirk to Sam, his lips say scumbag, and his words that we actually hear are scuzzbag. I wonder why they did that. Maybe scumbag was a little iffy. Maybe it's worse. Like, I don't want to ask, what is a scumbag? What is a scuzzbag? I mean, I have ideas, but... I think your ideas are correct. Okay, so that would be a reason why they changed it. But my question is, when they're editing it, why not just cut to Sam, like an over-the-shoulder from... Because TVs were really small and nobody noticed until we mentioned it. It's very clear, but you know what? I'm going to give all these things a pass because it's MIA. Yeah, I even like feel bad reading these. You know, but uh, it's her job. We didn't find these either. We read them and saw them. So we're not nitpicky. We're just reading the nitpicks, right? We're just the messengers in this. This is actually really cool. The Dean Stockwell photograph is provided courtesy of Roddy McDowell, a renowned photographer. McDowell would later appear on the series two years later in A Leap for Lisa. Wow. He's probably most famous for Planet of the Apes, but yeah, really good actor. And uh, it's cool that he took the photograph that we see on Beth's mantle. That's a really good photograph, too. Probably why they used it. This is Hayden's favorite fact ever, like ever. The reason why Beth's favorite flowers are calla lilies are because Deborah Pratt's favorite flowers are calla lilies. She actually has the same flowers that were growing in Beth's garden growing in her own garden. Wow. That's That's really cool. cool. Yeah. Well, thank you for all that trivia, Heather. You're welcome. My favorite flowers are now calla lilies, if anyone is sending them. <laughs> are you excited for the next season of Quantum Leap? Yeah, that's like the middle season. We're almost halfway there. I'm excited because this is going to be like a Scott Bakula episode next. Oh, wait, they all are. 
<laughs> it's it's a really Scott heavy episode, which is really good, and it's about you know the leap home. It's Scott's favorite episode. That's what I hear. So obviously, it's a good one. This month, Quantum Leap begins its new season with an exciting leap into Sam's boyhood home. Sam, you scared ten years out of me. It's a touching reunion with Sam's past. a challenging double role for actor Scott Bakula. You look just the way I remember you. What, since you left for school this morning? Playing both Sam and his own father. But trying to change the future becomes painful. I just don't want to see my brother die in a lost cause. I am not going to get killed in now. I don't want to believe you know the future. Because if you do, Tommy's going to die. So why can't I see strangers and not the people I love. I don't know. Whoever you are, wherever you are, I'm not doing it anymore. I quit. Quantum Leap season premiere two weeks from tonight, September 28th on NBC Friday. That looks really awesome. The corn maze and the girls and his teenage awkwardness. He's got to be a teenager, right? Uh, He seems younger. I'm thinking teenager. Teenage awkwardness. I'm excited. He's still at home. He's got a varsity jacket. Yeah, I'm thinking high school. High school? You're like, I'm leading her in all the wrong directions. This isn't about Sam at all. He's actually transgendered. <laughs> this isn't about Sam at all. They're going to, five minutes in, they're going to leap somewhere else. <laughs> in the next episode of Quantum Leap, Sam leaps home. And in the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, our guest is Scott Bakula. So our show is Scott Bakula. In the next show, the Quantum Leap podcast is Scott Bakula. I'm excited. <laughs> We're really excited about the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast because of the Scott Bakula interview. So uh, let all your friends know on your Facebooks and your Twitters and your Instagrams and your LinkedIn's and what else is there? On the interwebs. Tell all your friends. Aim. Yeah. Let everybody know. <laughs> Just send out a, a, a group text. Scott Bakula will be on the next Quantum Leap podcast. With a link. You can do that, can't you? I think so. Yeah. I know everybody I know is really excited. In the next episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, we're talking about the leap home. But stay tuned because immediately following the release of this podcast is our Donald P. Belisario interview, the creator himself. Now that's a special. So stay tuned for that on this feed. Until next time, I'm Albie. And I'm Heather. Scott Bakula. Scott Bakula. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast. Go to QuantumLeapPodcast.com and listen to new episodes. The Quantum Leap Podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal TV. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to get behind-the-scenes information, exclusive content, and to be notified first when new episodes are available. To support the podcast, you can go to Patreon.com slash QuantumLeapPodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash QuantumLeapPodcast. The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent or reflect those of the Quantum Leap Podcast, Baron Space Productions, its partners, or affiliates. Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, John Buchanan, and Juan. Researched by Juan. Contributors Hayden McQueenie and Jill Arroway. Voice talent provided by John Buchanan, Tony Fennerin, and Juan. The co-producer for the Quantum Leap Podcast is Hayden McQueenie, and Juan is the line producer. The Quantum Leap Universe and all it contains is property of Belisarius Productions and Universal TV. No infringement is intended. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a barren space production.
What are you doing? I'm not doing anything. What's that sound? I don't know. I'm not, okay. I'm not touching anything. Okay. It's coming from you. I'm not touching any... Look at me. I'm not touching anything. Okay. I'm not touching anything. I'm sitting on the chair. Okay. Ready? That's the sound. Yeah, but what? I don't say things... Your leg's not on it? My, my legs are, are... The only thing my legs are touching are these cords. Okay. Okay. Maybe this was touching that cord or something? No? Okay. Did it again. There's literally nothing touching anything. You hear it though, right? It's Rennie. It's Rennie. It's Rennie in her bucket. Oh, it's not bucket. me. It sounded like the metal from <laughs> down here. I'm not doing anything. It's her pail. Her she... metal pail. She's banging it with something. Mm-hmm. And you're blaming me. I'm like, <laughs> I'm not doing anything. You jerk. <laughs> Wasn't me. What are you waiting for? Okay, ten seconds. Ready. Sam sees Al just as he uses the hand link to step through the imaging chamber door. Why can't I say words? <laughs> I want to know what you're thinking. I want to know what's really on your mind. <laughs> you sound like a psychiatrist all of a sudden. There's psychologist. A There's a song. Oh, I don't know. I want to know what you're thinking. Is there something on you? No. 80s music? Probably. Yeah. Uh, Jean D'Aquino was on the latest episode Did of... Did you N- say Jean <laughs> Wow, I need a nap. Right? Okay, <laughs> let's go back. Okay. <laughs> so we'd like to formally un- welcome them. Formally? Form- formally. Formally. <laughs> formally. <laughs> it's the organic cane sugar. <laughs> yeah. This one was going to be three hours and 59 minutes, but the uh, bloopers... Thanks to Heather. Send all your emails to Heather about how it's four hours and one minute. Yeah. Organic cane sugar, that's just sugar, just so you know. It's just kidding. Evaporated cane juice, it's just sugar, just so you know. It's just kidding. I know. Is it good? I'm only trying it. You tried it. Yeah, it's good. Island, island fruit sounded like a good flavor. It does. <clears throat> okay. So I thought <laughs> The podcaster formerly known as Mac Jackson. What is it? Max Janikin? <laughs> Jack's Mannequin. Max Janikin. No, no. Jack's Mannequin is right. Max Janikin. <laughs> yeah. No, this is a different person. The The artist, for, the podcaster formerly known as Mac Jackson is now male cop number one. <laughs> I'm laughing at how stupid my laugh sounds. Wow. Four hours and two minutes. <laughs> how is this show going to be four hours? We don't have that much content. <laughs> Mostly you laughing. No, don't put this on there. Oh no, no. <laughs> she can tell from my face. I'm gonna totally put this on there. I hate you. <laughs> so Heather, is there anything else to announce? Maybe you should announce it. <laughs> I still can't uh, cut that out. The laughing over there. Um, I have some announcements to make. You're sucking up all the air. I'm thinking there's like a lack of oxygen in here or something. Now. There's all that talk of Jonathan Galecki earlier. <laughs> what? <clears throat> Don't look at me. <laughs> Four hours and three minutes.
Heather, do you have anything to announce? I hate you. <laughs> Don't worry. We'll look into it. Georgia, Georgia. Look at me, Beth. The whole day through. Oh, Sam, why did you make me do this? Just an old sweet song keeps Georgia on my mind. Georgia, I said, a Georgia. A song of you. I want you to wait for me, Ben. It's moonlight. Don't give up, honey. Cause I'm alive out there. Other arms reach out to me. Other eyes and I'm only alive tenderly. because of our love. Still in the peaceful dreams, I see the road leads back to and someday. I said, Georgia. Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Georgia on my mind arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Back 